Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Casting the Spotlight episode number 64. This will be part two of Don Wickman's Life Saga story. And uh, here today we have the same cast of crew here, and uh, let's... uh, Let's get it going, I guess. Same Part two. Band. We left yeah. off in about 1972. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. <clears throat> what was going on? What What did we wrap with last time? What yeah. Well, this This setting, you were. Oh, I'd finally moved into uh, an apartment that had air conditioning. First time in my oh, life. Yeah. yeah, and you had said that we were like, yeah, well, you guys know what that's like. Yeah, in Delore Park <laughs> yeah. Apartments off of Grand and Delore, and. That didn't last too long because um, I got laid off about a year later and then couldn't afford that apartment, so I had to move somewhere else. But going back, um, I guess we yeah, we, we wound up about 1972. 73 would be, it's where I'm starting tonight. And 73, March 20th, would have, was my 21st birthday. And my brother Ed was a key holder at the Playboy Club on Lendl Boulevard. And that's where he took me for my 21st birthday. So that was kind of memorable. Yeah. I still remember Linda saying to me, well, at that time everybody smoked, and there were ashtrays all over, and one of the Playboy bunnies comes over and reaches for the ashtray. <clears throat> on the table and she walks away and Linda looks at me and she said you almost got a bust in the mouth <laughs> she said literally <laughs> and I said yeah I said, she got pretty close to be there so we kind of laughed about that but it was good food as I remember and, and of course we had to have a couple drinks and uh, it was a good time and it, it's something I won't forget not bad for 21st <clears throat> yeah it's a pretty memorable 21st at least yeah there are no more Playboy clubs now. I mean, they're all yeah. gone. But at that time, they were pretty big. And, uh, it was a nice place. So I enjoyed that. Uh, the rest of 73, I don't know. I mean, that was a year we had the oil embargo after the Arab-Israeli war because of our support for Israel, which created long gas lines. And you'd get up to the pump or two or three to the pump, and they put the sign out, out of gas. So you sit there for an hour, an hour and a half, and then you get there and you can't get gas. So that was... Um, that was the shortage year. Well, yeah, they. but, you know, we depend on foreign oil so much. And Iran, Saudi Arabia, they shut it down, the exports to us. And there just wasn't enough to go around. So we lived with high gas prices, and that's a, if you could buy it. That was a big thing. A lot of a lot of shortages, a lot of outages, a lot of stations just closed. They'd get so much gas, they'd sell it, and they'd close. Yeah. Everybody's taking the bus until the bus shuts down because there's no gas. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, and we didn't have Uber then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, the other thing I remember that year was uh, Vietnam War ending. <clears throat> that was a big thing, naturally. Actually, we're over about 20 years, but most people think it was shorter. But I think it was in the... I think it was in the 50s when we sent advisors and that over there. You know? Yeah, that's what we were talking about a little uh, last time, like how there was, it was kind of yeah. maybe cold for a lot of it, and then it got hot yeah. towards 
even though they never declared a war. Yeah. And I, do you remember that being like uh whenever they pulled them all out and stuff, do you remember it being like positive or negative outlook? Well, I think it was both because it was positive because we lost, I don't know, almost 60,000 soldiers yeah. over there. And how many more, you know, wounded and disabled for life. Um, but there was a lot of joy that we were out, you know, out of there. Yeah. But then on the other hand, a lot of people felt like we failed. Mm-hmm. You know, we were supposed to be a superpower and we can defeat a little country like Vietnam. But they were being backed by the Russians and China. So it was basically a proxy war. With the United States and China and Russia, I guess. Uh, but I mean, I, I was glad it ended, and we weren't sending any more young people over there to be killed. So yeah, that was a good thing. Fighting like in their environment that they know too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it like, yeah, it was an unwinnable battle. The longer we stayed over there, wasn't going to make us the victors. We were just going to keep losing more people and losing the war. Well, that's what I think. Yeah. So. Anyway, other than that, in 73, I can't can't remember too much more than that that uh, was anything really important. Who was Prez, 1973? Um, Nixon. Oh, yeah. Nixon resigned in 74. Oh, yeah. So he was president. The man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then we jumped to 1974, and like we just said, Richard Nixon resigned and Gerald Ford became president to finish out the term. Uh, in my life, I got laid off at CPAS. We talked about my job at CPAS, driving a truck, and mm-hmm. it, it was a good union job, good paying, good benefits. And uh, that required that we give up the apartment and get a cheaper place to live. So we rented a house on Wilcox Avenue off of Kings Highway, by Christie Park. It was a two-family flat. We lived upstairs and the owners lived downstairs. And uh, that's where Brian was born. And um, we lived there for a few years, I guess. Anyway. And he was born June 22nd, June 22nd, 1974. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, and a little bit about the job at CPAS that I talked about. I got laid off. Things were kind of slow. You know, the economy was not the best. But the crazy thing was I had seniority over seven other drivers. Well, in the union, seniority is supposed to be, supposed to mean that whoever's the lowest seniority gets laid off first. So that didn't sit well very with very well with me or a lot of the other drivers that I was friends with and we had a very tense union meeting and there were even some guns in the room and uh, the guys I work with said we're not putting up with this and this you know on and on and on and I said you know what there's nothing you can do about it I appreciate the support but there's really nothing you can do and also the president of the company called me in and told me, he said, I just want you to know that this is wrong. You should not be laid off. You have seniority. He said, the supervisor tells me you're one of the best drivers. 
But he said, I cannot fight the union on this at this time. He said, sales are not good. Profits are down. He said, I just want, want you to know that it's not, it's not us. It's the union that's saying you're the one to get laid off. And I knew what it was. Uh, there was, well, a couple incidents. I, I guess one was I was in there uh, reporting for work, driving a truck, like 8 o'clock in the morning. I think I started that day. It was during Lent, and if you remember Lent with Catholics, you ate fish every Friday, and so things got really busy for a seafood place during Lent. So business was really good. So I started helping loading trucks to get to get out. I'm on the clock. I'm getting paid. I have nothing to do because my truck's not loaded. So I started helping loading trucks. Well, the business agent was named John. And he came in and he came up to me and said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm helping load trucks. I said, we're way behind and I want to get out of here and get my work done today and go home, you know. He said, you don't get paid to load trucks. You get paid to drive a truck. Go sit in the lunchroom and have a cup of coffee. I said, I don't drink coffee. He said, well, you're not going to be loading trucks. Go in the... So I did. Sat there until noon. Sat there for four hours. Finally, my truck got loaded. I got done at 8 or 9 o'clock that night, which I didn't want to do. So that was part of it. They uh, uh, they worked it around that, that I got laid off, and he even gave me more trouble. Um, that was right before Brian was born and I got laid off, probably, probably March or so. And I called him because I wanted the insurance farms to cover the birth of Brian, which, you know, the insurance, if you're, if your wife becomes pregnant while you're employed under that contract, even if you get laid off or fired or whatever, they still have to pay because that happened, you know, during the time period you were covered with health insurance. Well, time goes by, he doesn't send the farms, doesn't send the farms, this goes on for a while. So finally I called a lawyer and a lawyer that I knew and, and I had him call there and I told him the situation. He said, I'll take care of it for you. So he calls, and boy, I'm telling you what, it wasn't 15 minutes. John's on the phone, the business agent from Teamsters, 700. What are you doing? He starts going off on me. I said, hey, just shut up. I said, I ask you over and over and over again to get me these farms, get this. I said, you're not going to take care of it? i got to take care of it. So, you know, uh, so that's what happened. I did get the farms like within a day or two. I got them. So I guess they didn't want to go any further with that. Back in the day when the Teamsters were good. Yeah. Ran by the mafia. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, I learned a lot about unions at that time. Uh, Everybody talks about the good the unions do, and and it's true that they generally get good pay, good benefits, blah, blah, blah. But things like this incident happen all the time, and they they tell people not to work fast, to slow down, so they can mm-hmm. hire more people and they get more union dues. And and um, I don't know, I just don't believe in that. If I go to work for somebody and they're paying me so much an hour, I'm going to work and do the best yeah. job I can. You know, I mean, I kill myself doing it, but I'm going to do a good job. And and they just seem to have you know, have the uh, the idea that, well, the more people, you know, the better. And that's true. More people employed, but they also get more union dues. 
anyway, that was uh, that was my first experience with the union. And after that, and the other thing about them is everybody gets paid the same. The truck drivers all got the same rate of pay. Didn't matter if you were there five years, ten years, or twenty years. You got the same rate of pay. What the union contract says. Well, if you guys, if you have guys that goof off half the day, they get paid the same thing you do if you work your butt off. So to me, that that isn't that isn't right. You know, yeah. in my mind, it is, and I guess some people don't care, but um, to me, that's just not right. The funny thing was, they laid me off, and after I left there, I was working the North St. Louis route, city and county, and they had to quit that because of the crime problem, no other drivers would take that route without having an armed guard sitting in the cab with them. And the company said, well, we can't afford to do that, to hire somebody to ride with a driver every day. And they said, well, they're not going to go in that neighborhood. It's too dangerous. And there were some truck drivers that were shot and robbed and beat up and blah, blah, blah. I had things stolen off of my truck several times, you know. But anyway, so they lost that. I don't know what happened to the customers. They were just, I guess, out of luck. Would have to come and pick it up, or, or you know, or uh, make other arrangements. I don't know. Another thing about that when I worked there was interesting, and it, and it leads into the sales part. I, I got into sales and that, but there was a guy named Pete Damaris that was a salesman for them, and this was in the early seventies. And Pete was a heck of a salesman. He was making over $100,000 a year in the early 1970s. That's insane. That's quite a stack. I have no idea. You know, that's got to be four or 500000 a year in today's dollars. Uh, but that's changed for him, too. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I thought that. I thought, boy, if I could go in sales, I could make some money, you know. But uh, that didn't go any farther. Or not at right, right at that time. And one thing happened to me there when I never drove a truck before. I got that job, and the first night there, the guy said, oh, you know, you got to pull the truck around. And I told him, I said, I never drove a truck before. I said, I, I believe I can do it. And He couldn't believe it. He said, okay. I said, look, I need the job, you know. And I said, I'm sure I can do this. So he basically showed me how to, you know, drive the truck and, and all that. And it worked out. You know, I worked there a few years before I got laid off. But I still remember the first route they sent me on as a driver. I started loading trucks the first year, then got promoted to driving. And they gave me 18 or 20 stops in Belleville, Illinois. And I'd never been to Belleville, Illinois. And I thought, what do I do? So I asked one of the other drivers. And he said, I'll give you directions to the first stop. Because they routed them in order. And he said, then you just ask that customer to each stop going back, you know. <laughs> And that's what I did. I got through the whole day without getting lost and got back to, to CFAS. <laughs> but I hadn't been out of, you know, I hadn't been hardly anywhere, you know. So I wasn't ever in Belleville. I traveled that area. Anyway, that's... Uh, Years before GPS, you just had oh, to yeah. rely on word of mouth yeah. <laughs> for yeah. where to go. Yeah. Yeah, the technology wasn't there. No cell phone. You'd have to yeah. go to a pay phone somewhere, find a phone booth. You know, if you had to call somebody or whatever. But it worked out. I was glad that guy gave me advice, the driver. He said, yeah, just I'll get you to first place and just go from there. And it worked out. Uh, otherwise, in 74, I think we covered pretty much 
early seventies, uh, still playing pool a lot, following having two um, kids because you had two kids at twenty two. Yeah, uh, yeah. Twenty two years. Seventy four. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really wasn't playing a whole lot at that time in the early seventies. Um, I worked quite a quite a few hours at CPAS, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, yeah, I don't remember really playing a whole lot at, at that time. Too busy supporting a family. To yeah. Play a pool. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the priorities, was, you know. Yeah, I was kind of thinking maybe you didn't play, you know, too much, especially like you know probably here and there, but you had a whole yeah. lot to contend with at that point. Yeah. A lot of bills to pay. Yeah, and money was a problem. You know, money was tight. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, pool kind of took a backseat at that time. So after losing that, of course, I had to had to look for another job, and I I did find one. Uh, very shortly after I left CPAS, I don't know exactly how how long it was. Um, anyway, it was for Rust-Oleum, Rust-Oleum Paints, which I think you guys know what that is. Yeah, I've definitely heard of Rust-Oleum. Yeah, on metal to prevent rust. And actually, the the company I worked for was called Four Wheel Supply. And it was a division of Rust-Oleum, you know, wholly owned by Rust-Oleum. But that was their distribution arm. And I had a uh, 12-foot step van that I worked out of. And I was the only one in the St. Louis area. I warehoused a product. I sold it. I delivered it. I did inventory. Everything you would do in a business, I did in St. Louis for Rust-Oleum. And... um, one thing I remember, Julie and Brian loved riding in that truck, riding in that step van. They thought that was pretty neat, which actually I probably shouldn't have let them do that. But, yeah. You know, uh, I, I would, yeah, I would, and, <laughs> and uh, never did get caught. <clears throat> the other thing they liked, I remember, because I guess a lot of jobs I worked a lot of hours, because Rustolian I worked a lot of hours, except in the winter, sales were really down. But once you got into spring, summer, and fall, I mean, I was working all, day and night. It was a Get them constant. against me. Yeah. But the wintertime slowed down. But then you would do service work for people. you put in new displays or, you know, whatever. Uh, so also, I tried to spend more time with the kids. I'd take them down. If I had to work at the warehouse on a Saturday and, and there was a shipment delivered, I had to put the shipments mm-hmm. away. So I'd bring them with me. <laughs> and I can still remember them climbing all over the boxes and, you know, hiding from each other and hiding from me. And they just thought that was a lot of fun. And then it gave me time to spend with them while I was working, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd take them out, you know, we'd get an ice cream or something afterwards. And so they seemed to really enjoy that. Uh, I did pretty well with four-wheel supply. I was there for almost ten years, nine and a half years, and uh, six months away from getting a pension. If I'd lasted six months longer, which wasn't me, they closed the whole division down that I was in. They closed Four Wheel Supply, and uh, it just went through other distributors like Ace Hardware mm-hmm. and True Value Hardware and Sears and whoever, you know, they just went direct to them instead of having us merchandise it and supply it for them. Just a string of jobs. Where, yeah, oh, layoff, oh, layoff. Oh, yeah. This, like, just trying to... Yeah. Make ends meet. Was that, was that that era where that just was happening a lot? Yeah. The 70s? Yeah, like the, yeah. yeah the 70s, 80, 82 was bad. You know, 70s, 
more horrible, you know, for interest rates and unemployment and all that was really not good. Till after 82, then things got got better. Um, yeah, the 80s seemed like they were quite flourishing. Yeah. But yeah, it seemed like a lot of, you hear a lot of stories about people yeah. getting laid off in the <laughs> 70s and looking well, yeah. tired. <laughs> You're like, well, Jimmy Carter's administration, that was yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably the worst president we ever had in my lifetime that I can remember. You know, and I think he was a really good man. He did a lot of good work for charities. He Mm -hmm. does that Habitat for Humanity and things like that. But he was just a terrible leader. That's what everybody says. They're like, Jimmy Carter was a great guy, but a bad president. (laughs) Yeah. You can have have a, a great guy that's a CEO of a company and can be lousy at it and run the company into the ground. It's the same thing with the president. Yeah. Uh, kind of like what what was that called the Peter Principle, where you're promoted to your level of incompetence. Well, that's what happened. I think Jimmy Carter got to the level of his incompetence. Uh, anyway, uh, enough about that. <laughs> uh, I had a, a few things that, and I, like I said, I did well with Rust-Oleum. The money wasn't all that great, but it it paid the bills. Um, but I won a lot of awards there, what they call President's Club. They had a ring that was fashioned after the Super Bowl ring. And they made it, and they had inserts all around it. And then every time, every year, you want, if you want it again, they put a diamond in it. So I got that. I think I only had three diamonds. But before that, they used to give plaques out. I had three or four of the plaques, and then they went to the ring. And then, of course, you know, they closed the division down. So... Uh, but uh, Don Ludwig was my sales manager, and we got to be personal friends, Don and Ann. And unfortunately, a couple of years ago, Don passed away, and last year, Ann passed away. Uh, but he worked with me one day, and he said, let's go out and just tear him up. And this was in spring when we'd stock everybody up for the, for, you know, for the nice weather. Mm-hmm. They start painting their patio furniture and everything outside. So let's go have a great day. And we loaded that truck to the hilt. Now you couldn't get anything else in there. Anyway, he and I, I think I met him about 6 o'clock in the morning. I think we finished about 9 or 10 that night. <laughs> we did $5,700 in sales. The largest sales day by far than anyone in four-wheel supply had ever done. Dang. I got a personal call from the president. And he said, I can't believe you did that kind of volume in one day. And I said, well, I did have help. <laughs> I said, Don worked with me. And he said, oh, yeah, he said, I saw that. He said, he writes reports. And uh, he said, I saw that he worked with you. He said, that's still a heck of a day. And I said, well, we did it. Uh, so that was kind of neat. Tore the house down. It didn't didn't give me anything. might have helped my bonus a little bit at the end of the year. Uh Oh, and my, when I worked for them, my nickname was Rusty. Everybody called me Rusty for Rust-Oleum, you know. And I, <laughs> I think, matter of fact, my nephew Steve was talking to me a couple of years ago, and he said, I ran into somebody that knows you. And I said, who? And then I don't think he could remember the guy's name. He said, are you related to Rusty? When I told him my name, and he, he said, Don Whitburn. He, 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 so he told him, so we called him Rusty. You know, he was a Rust-Oleum salesman. Yeah. Steve, yeah, he said, yeah, that's my uncle, you know. And I can't even remember who it was now, but apparently it was one of my customers from a hardware store, lumber yards, that I called on. But it shows you how even years later, you know, yeah. that 
things can come back. This guy, him and Steve, just talking. and Word gets around. Yeah, and he saw the last name, and he remembered me and, and asked him. And sure enough. Oh, uh, my God, that wasn't a name you hadn't heard in years either. But it's oh, no, no, I hadn't. With yeah. That yeah. job. It is. It is, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a proper nickname. Uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, I, uh, one of the things that happened to me, there was a chain called Essen Hardware at the time, and they're no longer in business. And I was out there in, on the Olive uh, location, uh, right off of 270. And a lady ran the paint department, was called was Daisy was her name. Really nice, sweet woman. And I was working over at the display, seeing what they need. Because I wrote orders, pulled them, brought them in. I did, like I said, I did it all. I delivered it, I sold it, you know, everything. So I come in and I'm bending over in the rack and I split my pants from stem to third. <laughs> I mean, just split it wide open. And I'm like, I guess I was gaining weight. It's getting a little fat. <laughs> uh, anyway, I thought, oh man, what am I going to do? So I got, it wasn't too far to go back behind uh, where the paint department, there was a little uh, storeroom back there. Mm. So I thought, I'm going back to the storeroom and I knew there was a bathroom back there. And, and I thought Daisy was back there, and she was. And I said, Daisy, I said, I got a real problem. You got to help me. She said, what's the matter? I said, I split my pants all the way. <laughs> I said, could, could you, do you have a needle and thread, or do you know how to sew, or can you? She said, no, I don't have a needle and thread. <laughs> and I said, well, what am I going to do? And she said, go in the bathroom and take your pants off and hand them to me. And I, I said, okay. <laughs> I'm I don't know what else to do, so I go in the bathroom, take my pants off, I hand them out to her. She says, I'll be back in a minute. She comes back and brings She says, this may be a little rough, but it's the best I can do. She had stapled the seam all the way around the pants. <laughs> you you tried driving the truck all yeah. day with staples. Ooh, <laughs> staples in your crotch. <laughs> she made it work, though. Yeah, I, what else are you going to do? Yeah, you had some pants. Yeah. Yeah, but that was funny. It, we had we laughed about that for years after that. Uh, the other thing, uh, they sent me up to uh, Iowa to train a new guy. He had the Nebraska, uh, he had Omaha, Nebraska, and a lot of Iowa. We had a, a man working up there for Rustoleum who was awful. Didn't call on the customers, didn't take care of them. They were losing accounts, and finally, I don't know whatever happened to him. He just never showed up for work again. And so they hired this young guy named Tim, great big guy, bodybuilder, you know, huge guy, but nice as could be, just just as nice. So I went up there to train him, and we walked into a store. Well, everybody was hot, you know, because they were running out of product, and this guy wasn't coming around taking care of them. I think it was in Des Moines where we were, and I don't remember this man's name. I think it was a True Value store. I'm not even sure about that. But anyway, I walked in, and we got talking. Well, this customer never said a word the whole time we're in there. I was the only one talking. And I kept telling him, I said, this is Tim. He's going to be taking care of you. I'm really sorry about the man you had before. You know, this is not the way Rust-Oleum operates, and, and we want your business. And 
And I said, Tim, I know I'll do a good job for you. He'll stop by. And, and I'm going, I'm waiting for him to say something. I, I don't care if he yells at me. I want him to talk to me, you know, so we can work this out. Never says a word. Never. I never had this happen in my life in any sales situation. Finally, I said, well, whatever his name was, don't remember. I said, well, thank you for your time. So we're going to go. We've got a lot to do, a lot of customers to see. I said, Tim will be in every couple of weeks and check with you and and we walked out. And Tim looks at me, he says, does that happen very often? He hadn't been in sales. He said, does this happen very often, Don, where a customer never says a word? I said, no, that's the first time it's ever happened to me. But I said, the next time you're here, you go in and see the guy. I said, I think you'll get his business back. He said, I'm not going in there. <laughs> I said, what's he going to, what's the worst he can do? He can't throw you out. You're too damn big. You know, I said, what? He'd kill you. Anyway, so so I trained him, and, and, and I went on, and I came home, and I said, I'll see you in Florida. We were having a sales meeting in Florida, and I said, we'll see how you're doing. It was only like two or three weeks or a month away. I, I forget what. So we get down in Florida, and uh, I had to take the bus to Florida. I remember that now. Anyway, we get in, into Florida, and I see Tim at the hotel, and he's, coming up to me and he's smiling i know exactly what he's going to tell me he went back to this customer and he got the business back because it was a really good customer he said i did it i got it back i said the guy actually talks he said yeah he does That's funny. <laughs> but that was the worst sales confrontation i ever had i never had one you know you you got to get people to express what's you know what's on their mind yeah you know we knew what happened. They weren't getting the service they deserved, and, and I would be upset about it, too. Anyway, Tim got back in there and took care of him as long as as long as long I know, and as long as four-wheel supply was in business, everything went well. You'd rather him almost yell at you or at least oh, say yeah. something That's, to you. Yeah. yeah, because then you can find out you know what what the problem is. I mean, I knew what the problem was yeah. basically going in, but, I, but I'm trying to mend the fences and, and keep the business for Rust-Oleum. I was not benefiting from it, but it was happened to be in the wintertime, and I wasn't losing any business anyway, really. So He never I, gave you a word? He never gave you never anything? Never said a word. Just, no. That must have been a defeating trip back. Oh. Just. Yeah. But you get used to that in sales because, yeah. you know, People ask me, so why would you ever want to be in sales? You, you get rejected more often than you get approval. And that's true. You know, nobody wants to talk to salesmen. You know, oh, you're in sales? Get the hell out of here. You know, I, I don't want anything from you and blah, blah, blah. But, uh, and maybe that's true, but I enjoyed it. I did it for a lot of years. And yeah, working on that commission. Well, the yeah. better your, you know, your, your skills with it will be as you keep going. Get like one out of ten, then get two out of ten, three out of ten. Like just yeah. as you keep at it, you'll get more and more. And you'll, yeah. You once know, you'll be, you'll be sharpened. Streak. Yeah. If you like, once you get more people to start saying yes, you'll have confidence. That's what happens. Yeah. And yeah. You learn what works and doesn't work. So, you know? yeah. yeah. So that I guess Rustolian was the first job where I was really in sales. You know, so that kind of started me down the sales path. Um. I remember that too when I was up there. I, I had pneumonia on that trip Ooh. to Iowa, 
and then coming back, I lost my hearing in both ears, and that's when I, well, you're, you're familiar with all my ear problems and the tubes. And, yeah, we've had a lot of the same ear Yeah, issues. so uh, I've had, I don't know, six or seven tubes put in my ears and all kinds of things since then. Anytime I flew in an airplane, that would happen to me. That's why I took a bus to Florida. I was supposed to fly down there, but after I came back from that trip with Tim, I couldn't hear. I went in, had the tubes, and the doctor said, you really shouldn't fly. So I wound up on a bus. That was not a trip I enjoyed. Bus ride to Florida. That's a long bus ride. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that happened to me again. Uh, I flew in O'Hare, and we had the meeting. Actually, that was before I did the training with Tim. That was not too long after I first started. Um I landed in O'Hare, and the same thing. I couldn't hear, and everybody said, oh, they'll pop, and your ears will open up, and everything will be fine. I was also met by, what did they call them? Hair Krishnas or something? The I don't know. This girl comes puts a lay around my neck. Welcome to Chicago, and I don't know what she wanted, but I got yeah. away from her pretty quick. <laughs> it was the, yeah, the greeters or whatever to the city, like the... Yeah, but they were, I don't know, they called them something I don't even remember because I brought it up to somebody at, at the sales meeting. Um, that was the first sales meeting I had in Chicago uh, when I was with rust -Oleum. And, of course, I met the president of the company, and I couldn't hardly hear him. I, both my, I could hear it a little, but it was very difficult to hear. So that was a terrible first meeting. Um Trying to think what, oh, we had, uh, yeah, about sales meetings. We had a sales meeting one time up in Chicago. Well, it, it was really Vernon Hills. That's where the corporate offices were. Evanston was the plant. And it was so cold that year. The actual temperature, I remember, was like 22 below zero. The actual temperature. Lake Michigan was 90% froze over. Just a horrendous winter so we get in and don ferguson who was the owner of the company he says we're not going to do this anymore we always had our sales meetings in the winter because of slow business times you know january or february he said we're going to go somewhere warm next year for our, for our sales meeting so we go to a place called pine isle resort in buford georgia Beautiful place. I don't know how big a lake it was, a 100,000 acre lake or something. Just a huge lake and pine trees all surrounding it. And this hotel or resort is nestled in the middle of all this. And just a beautiful place. So we get in, check in. Of course, we do the thing at night. You know, we had a couple of drinks and talked. And we had to be up early for the sales meeting in the morning. And coming down the steps, there was a huge picture window overlooking the lake and the pine trees and everything. We get up and we turn around that corner going down the steps. Everything's filled with snow. It's six <laughs> inches of snow overnight in Buford, Georgia. They don't even have snow plows in Buford, Georgia. It doesn't snow in Buford, Georgia, we found out. So I remember Don Ferguson coming to the podium that morning and saying, Welcome, gentlemen. To the sunny south. <laughs> it almost looked like Chicago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, I just thought that was kind of ironic. We were trying to get away from all that nasty cold mm -hmm. weather. And here we are. And 
But the thing was, I think it was four or five o'clock in the afternoon. The guys were out playing golf on the on the golf course, and it was all yeah, gone. Everything, yeah. yeah, it got up to like sixty-five or seventy degrees, and it didn't last very long. But it was a beautiful sight, and, and uh, kind of comical because we wanted to get away from that. Well, it would be a little neat too if it never snows there, and it just like mm-hmm. suddenly did. Yeah, you were there. Mm. It is kind of funny though that it's like the point of the trip was to escape yeah. the winter weather. Yeah, and that was the whole point. Was the winter weather? We had some good. Well, I told told you before. I think we talked about this. That things that I talked about when I was a teenager that I wanted to do: have my own home, have yeah. a pool table in the basement. Long-term and there were a few goals. things I wanted to see. I wanted to see the ocean, the mountains, and go to Las Vegas were three of my items on my bucket list. So one year, uh, one of the salesmen was in Amelia Island, Florida, where Chrissy Everett lives, a tennis star. She's a tennis pro. You guys may not know her. She's back in my day. Anyway, she lived. We actually saw her. She lives on Amelia Island. But it was almost the same. It was not snowing there, but it was cold and rainy the whole time we were there. It was awful. But that was my first time to see the ocean. So I did get to see the ocean and the palm trees, which was really neat. So I was excited about that. But the weather was actually warmer here than it was there. <laughs> so that that didn't make me feel too good. But I did see the ocean. Whoever's booking these trips needs to just stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give it to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, the other thing with that, we talked a little bit about technology. I can still remember I had to handwrite all the orders that I did. I'd come home at night. I'd have to put them all in order, and i have to mail them. You know, and it'd take two or three days to get to Chicago before they could fill the or before they could bill them. I would deliver the product, so that was taken care of. But you think of that today with the fax machines and computers, you wouldn't have to do any of that. I'd have a little tablet going and just punching in numbers next to a product code, and it, and it would probably go direct to Chicago, and they'd ship it out. I mean, I wouldn't even have to, yeah. deli- yeah. you know, have a truck or anything. I mean, things have changed so much. And so quickly. Yeah. Uh, oh, I remember Randy Pierce was a guy out of Kansas City, worked for Four Wheel Supply, and we were in Amelia Island, and we were in a restaurant eating dinner. Maybe the first or second night we were there. I don't know what it was. But he was a character. He was really funny. And something went wrong in a restaurant. He wasn't happy with He says, he said, that's it. He stands up. He said, this isn't the only restaurant in town. And I grabbed his arm and pulled him down. I said, it is the only restaurant on this island. <laughs> he said, oh, my God. I said, shut up and eat. But he told a story down there where he took his, his step van and he went to a come and go. You ever heard of come and go? They're like a yeah. quick shop. He said, I parked it, went in and got some Hostess Twinkies or something. So it came out, it was gone. It rolled across the street. He didn't want to park it. <laughs> so he told that story to all the guys. Uh, oh, and the other thing, uh, we got the Sears account when I was with Rustonia. I don't know, four or five years, I guess, after. Wh- I so, yeah, there. when was that about? Would you say? What's that? Well, what you just said. Oh, get the Sears account? 
Yeah, like roughly. Like you had been working there for... Oh, yeah. This has been a while. I don't know the exact dates on the meetings and that. Well, like years-wise? I worked from 74 to 84. Okay. At Rust-Oil. Okay. Yeah. That was a good stint. Yeah, it was almost 10 years. It was actually nine and a half, even though, you know, it was 84. But when I started and and when they closed the company, it was only half a year. So it, it was nine and a half years. Uh, but one thing I remember, and I tell the story, probably your mom has heard it before. We got the Sears account probably, that was probably around 1980, I, I'm guessing. And I was at the Sears in uh, Fairview Heights, Illinois. And I was walking in with my clipboard in hand. And there, I, know, I could tell someone was walking right behind me. So I stopped and I opened the door and I let that person go in before me. Well, it's a young woman wearing sunglasses and she stops and just looks at me and puts her sunglasses up and she said, you don't have to hold that door for me because I'm a woman. I said, I'm not. I'm holding the door for you because I'm a gentleman. <laughs> and she went, huh, and just walked, walked into the store. And I, and I came home and told Linda, I said, I met my first feminist today. <laughs> so that yeah that was interesting I thought that was kind of funny I guess it I don't know when the feminist movement really started or whatever and you know and I believe in equal pay for men and women and all that but I, I just thought I don't know I just thought that was kind of rude yeah I do that today and I don't know if someone taught me that or what but if I'm going into any store or anything mm-hmm. I'll and I know someone you know how in your peripheral vision yeah. you I hold the door. I don't care if it's an old man, a five-year-old, a woman. Or, yeah. I don't care yeah, who do they are. Especially if you're going in a second before them and they're like right there. You're yeah. like, oh, let me get yeah. the door. Yeah. It's some, like that should be offensive. Yeah. Sometimes it's a woman's got two little kids she's trying to handle. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I just do that. And I did it for her. I had no idea if it was a man or woman or what. Just trying to do the gentlemanly thing. Yeah. What's that wrong, the same wrong way, dead. though. I don't... Are you the same way? I always oh, yeah. just oh, yeah. hold the door. Like, if I'm walking right in front of somebody, it doesn't really matter if it's guy, girl, whatever, yeah. whatever age. Well, that's just what you're, you know, taught to do. Like, kind of like, not that it's supposed to be a role thing. It's just you're kind of helping somebody out. Oh, I'm right here anyway. I might as well open the door yeah. for you, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know how, you know, if I learned that, someone taught me. I guess it's just... It's just good manners. That's what I've done, you know. And yeah. Well, that's the way you're raised. It's the way, you know. Yeah. It's the way it's, it, there's just certain things that seem right about manners and, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, courteous things. Yeah. Leaving the toilet seat down kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, For lack of better metaphors. So anyway, that's pretty much my experiences with Rustolium. And, uh. Let's see. Oh, we moved. I told you we moved to Wilcox, and in '76 we moved to uh, to Linda's mom and dad's, my mother and father-in-law's. Yeah. He had got transferred to uh, Springfield, Illinois, and they didn't really want to sell the house, so we rented the house from him, which might have been kind of weird for Linda, you know. Yeah, decent timing though. Have somewhere to go. Yeah, and if I remember right, the the rent was fair, and you know, uh, my father in law was pretty fair about that. Um, 
so we so we uh, so we moved there from Wilcox and stayed there. We stayed there about a year, I guess. And uh, I don't know about '76. Anything? Oh, well, we talked about Carter was elected president. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't know how bad he was going to be, you know, when he got elected. But <laughs> well, you know, he probably got elected. Gerald Ford was not very popular and then you had Nixon I think they just people wanted to change that was just a you train know. wreck and they were done with <laughs> they, those too the, no, like that yeah. like just that the 70s yeah, yeah, yeah. what do you think with all the people in this country that we'd be able to get a decent person to be president of this country uh, no no decent person <laughs> wants to run apparently uh, or that has a that has an actual shot yeah um any of the de- any of the decent, highly intelligent people are like, yeah, I'm good. I yeah. don't want any part of that. Yeah. So, mom was probably starting school around sometime. She in was seventy yeah, six. Uncle and, Brian was a toddler. Yeah, and when we lived on uh, Connecticut, there, um, we were a block and a half from grade school, where your mom started going to school in uh, kindergarten. So that was nice. She could walk to school. Mm-hmm. You know, Linda would walk to school with her. Uh, it's funny, I see all the buses and that, but uh, my kids, now, well, they did take a bus. I can't say they never did, but they did when they went to Fox when we moved out here. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking they hadn't, but they did then. Yeah, we didn't, uh, people used to move like that. They would move close to a school, you know, in walking distance or, you know, fairly good distance. So that was that was kind of handy for us. It seemed like that was always the you way see, in city schools was yeah, to yeah. walk. Yeah. You see it a lot in like movies and stuff like that too. Like everything is right there, like where you need, you know what I'm saying? Everybody, like yeah. the school you go to, oh, the local movie theater, the this or that. Everybody's just kind of around town and knows each other kind of thing. Yeah, and you, you know, you go to school generally with your the neighborhood kids, Yeah, you know. You know how it is when you go to high school, you can go with kids from all over, people, you know, you don't know at all, but <laughs> Leo wants to get Just in on the smacking air. around his toys, <laughs> smacking it against the wall. And that year, I don't remember, 76 with a whole lot um, going on that I could recall. You know, As you know, I've been working on it for a while, trying to yeah. jog my memory on things. Well, you know what happened in 1977, or one thing that happened. Oh, I definitely know one thing that happened. <laughs> what is it? Star Wars. The yeah, original Star, Star Wars. Wars got released. I mean, that was that was breakthrough. You it know? was. It was. It really, it really was for film. The sci-fi genre. That was all together. Yep, May really? twenty, yeah. May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy seven. But I mean, it really did change movies and everything, even at that time. It did. Yeah, it was incredible. The special effects and. There was nothing else like it that was no, out. No, there was nothing like it. No. Well, it still lives on today, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's still still sure. popular oh, to yeah. some degree. Without their original film, none of it would have happened. You yeah. Know, the whole, not, none of the whole thing would have happened. They're so. making all the spinoffs and everything. Series and streaming, you know, different things now. Yeah. Movies, it's whole universe now. Yeah. Exploring everything. Yeah. That was also... Um, the first Apple computer came out in 77. Yeah, remember, we didn't have computers back then. And really not anybody had them after that. I think that's when they first started going on sale, though. 
So you guys can't remember a time without computers, can you? Have you had computers since you were young? Yeah, we got one in my house when I was like five or six. Okay. But the early 2000s and even through the mid-2000s, the internet was just... Oh, I was just not good. I mean, it was something. You had something. Yeah, I want to know, what did a computer look like in 77? Because, like, even in the early 2000s, there was a big brick. Yeah. With a big tower. That was still pretty big. It was a big box. I remember that, yeah. Now, we didn't get one right away, but I can remember them advertising them and that, you know. And uh, Well, you can look at, uh, what was that war movie? They showed a computer room. I can't remember the name of it. But, I mean, they had this room, just these huge computers from, you know, floor to ceiling on every wall. And then somebody was saying, they said, today your phone can do more than all those computers yeah, combined. Yeah, powerful. Could do, yeah. yeah. So the technology is. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Like, because the internet probably wasn't around yet. No, it wasn't. Right? So what, what would you do on a computer? No, right. Just mostly for office work. And yeah, for, like you know, things like that. and analysis kind of stuff, probably. Yeah. If I, I mean, there wasn't even pictures. It was just, what was the operating system? Was it DOS? I think it was DOS. Mm-hmm. It was all just words. You know, there were, there were no pictures or anything. As far as I remember, there wasn't. Yeah. It was mostly designed for office work and for typing. and. The early, I feel like some of the early stuff was almost like, they had like very basic like encyclopedia-like knowledge on there. Like if you look a word up or look a thing up or whatever, but it was... It wasn't really like internet or anything to go to. Like it was before the dot com era and everything else. Because like yeah. even the late nineties, like it ended up having, like that was whenever internet sites started yeah. getting bigger. Wasn't the internet? Wasn't that the late nineties or mid nineties before the internet was up? Sometime like, but but yeah. it was definitely the late nineties. Like because a lot of sites, you know, were selling merch and everything else, and like movies were coming out. And they started everything started having its own like. You know, go to this page. Yeah. Yeah. Go to this page for this event and find information. I don't even remember that. I remember getting my first computer and having internet, but I can't remember what year. It seemed like maybe the late 90s. I may have been before that. I just didn't have the computer and the access to the internet. I have a general idea, but I don't don't, know a year for sure. Yeah. And that was the dial-up internet. Take forever to load a page. Oh, it was like yeah. one pixel at a time. Yeah, pick yeah. up it the was phone bad. and it'd be screeching. Yeah, the phone. Yeah, that that sound. <laughs> yeah, oh, that was annoying. I would usually just give up after a while. You know, if it took so yeah. long to load, and you know, even the change from uh, uh, to Charter when I changed to Charter. Uh, my God, the internet speed! What did I have before that? I guess through, I guess through a phone line, AT and T. But when I went to Charter, I downloaded the first file, and I didn't think it downloaded. It usually took like twenty minutes or so. It downloaded in like sixty seconds or less. Incredible. Uh, yeah, advancements of technology are snapping. Oh yeah. At some point in there, we were talking about this too. You're talking about the. Um, how they were playing music, like records. Well, you described how like it was re- like records sort of at different stages, and then eventually there was an eight track, and then a cassette, yeah. and that probably happened in like the mid to late seventies too. Yeah, yeah, I don't know exactly when. Yeah, in the seventies, I had 
I had an eight track tape in my car and, and a player and that. Cause, and the eight track was definitely before the cassette. Yeah, because some idiot broke into yeah. it and stole it and, and all my eight track tapes too. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so I do know I had that in uh, maybe the mid 70s. But I don't know when they changed from. The Walkmans and all that stuff. The too. Walkmans. Yeah, that <laughs> yeah. started. That was a yeah. big deal, it seemed yeah. like. Yeah, with the cassettes. First and... time you could walk around with your music. It just, yeah. yeah. Legit. But, it, <laughs> but that was a big deal at that time. Mm-hmm. Now it just seems, you know, crazy. That, but uh, that, was a, that was a big deal. Yeah, it's really changed. The internet has changed everything. Uh, where were we? Oh, 77. 77. Elvis Presley died that year. And, you know, it's a funny thing how you remember certain things. I was in Smithton, Illinois at a lumber yard while I was still working for Rust-Oleum. And I was coming home or, or heading back this way. And I heard that on the radio. And for some reason, I was just kind of sad about that. It just seemed like he was so young, 42 years old. And not that I was a great big Elvis fan, but. I don't know, just seemed a shame, uh, a man that had that much talent and, uh, you know, to die so young. And, and well, he just, was like one of the very, maybe the first or one of the very first just superstars. Yeah, yeah. Too. So it was kind right. of like. And his story was just kind of sad anyways, because he kind of just, he just had a slow decline mm-hmm. the whole way. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, it must have been miserable there at the, at the end farm. But anyway, I, I, that's what I remember. I just remember feeling sad. And a lot of people were upset about it. It wasn't like he was a president in the United States or uh, some diplomat or something. But, you know. Yeah, he, but he was huge. He but, was just known all over the world. Yeah. You know, everybody just. They still go to Graceland every year. There wasn't even that many people, like, that got even close to as popular at that time, like, as he did. You know what I mean? There wasn't. There just weren't that many. Right. Superstar. Superstar. Yeah, there just yeah. really weren't that many. No. At all. No. Uh, I don't know much about 77. I don't have too many notes here on that. Some years, I guess, were not too interesting, huh? But 77, though, that that was a pretty big year. Well, it was a quite a bit year, of events. Yeah. So, yeah. Wars, the computer, Elvis died. You guys yeah. moved. You said that. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, we lived... Well, you know what? In 77, we did move. We moved from Linda's house in because her mom and dad were moving back from Springfield. And that's when we moved out to Arnold. And we rented a house um, for a year. And then those people had rented it, and they had moved to California. Well, then they were going to move back. So then we had to move out of that house. So that meant that in 1978, another dream of mine came true. I bought my first house right across the street from where we were renting the house. So the move wasn't too big. (laughs) Kind of like you moving on Hampton there. Yeah. We just moved across the street. (laughs) That was, wait, was that Lincoln? On Lincoln. Yep, 78. Okay. Yeah. $30,000. And that was the house mom, you know. She grew up in. That was kind of like, yeah, yeah, where they both really started growing up in. Yeah, she was there until she was 20 years old. 20, 21, till 92. And you were working pretty consistently with uh, Rust-Oleum? And- yeah, yeah. Yeah, at that time, yeah, I worked there through 84. So things were going pretty 
Yeah, and the economy was, was not too bad, but yeah, yeah. Well, we struggled that first year. Like I said, the interest rate was 10%. Today, people think, <laughs> the, what is it now, 65 or 7 They think that's crazy. Well, it's interesting, too, because some of the jobs where you're like, oh, layoff, layoff, this happened. Yeah. It was like slower work is like sort of reflective of some of the inconsistency of the 70s, too, and like when yeah. things were dipped, you know, they and then they got better, they got worse, they got, you know what I mean? Like, right. And... Then as, like, it got a little later, like, things started to, you know, look a little up. Yeah. There's always been that trend, you know, business is good and bad. The stock oh, yeah. market's up and down, and savings rates are up and down. Interest rates go, you know. Uh, no, but it just operates like a chain. Yeah. And, you know, you can go back through 100 years, and you'll see that, you know, the Great Depression, and the stock market crashes, mm-hmm. and, uh, I mean, just... You know, it it just happens. It's just a, a cycle. But yeah, ten percent interest rate. I can't believe that now. You know that I paid that, and not only that, I think in nineteen eighty or eighty one, they went to like sixteen percent interest rate. Yeah, thank you, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> he, he's a great guy, wasn't he? He took care of you. <laughs> yeah. And then the debacle in in Iran. Was that the, was it seventy seven? Was that the hostage situation? No, that was seventy nine. That was seventy nine because it it was right before the eighty election. Something I mentioned recently, but I didn't think to like mention to you or to, to put in the notes or anything. I guess was like that. So we mentioned that uh, the Olympic Games, the Munich thing. Was that that was like nineteen seventy two? Yeah, I think hostage. it was seventy two. Yeah. yeah. I remember that a little bit. I don't remember a whole lot about it. Yeah, it would just held up the Olympic Games and yeah. they couldn't finish the event because of all the you know chaos that was going on over there. Yeah, I believe that was 72. Anyway. Um, well, that, yeah, that moved ahead a little bit to uh, 1979, but um, well, we can cover that again. Anyway, 78, yeah, bought my first house. Dream of years accomplished. Um, yeah. Yeah. And probably a year or two later, I had a pool table in the basement. Just like I had talked to Linda about, and she just kind of blew me off like, okay, <laughs> that's not going to happen. You know, because we both grew up poor. Four anyway, and a half by nine foot, right? It was a four and a half by nine, yeah. And luckily, I had the offset on the beams. And the poles that I could fit that, you know, and, and still have plenty of room to play. Yeah, I had a lot of complaints about it. The guys would come over that I played in the bars with on the seven-foot table and they'd <laughs> go to the nine-foot table, and they didn't do so well. Oh, yeah, it doesn't work out well the other way. That's why it was, yeah. it was easy, you know, playing here all the time over all these years because, like, you're playing on a four-by-eight, and then you hop on the pool hall or the bar tables, the three-and-a-half-by-sevens, yeah. and <laughs> you can school some people. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember Linda talking one night. I had a couple guys from Tenbrook Lounge over, uh, Larry and Jim, and we played. Seemed like there was another guy too, but I don't can't remember who it was. And of course, while we were gambling, we were playing for money, and, and they left, and they were thanking her, you know, for you know letting them come over and play pool and all. And they were just going on and on, you know, and. And uh, and they laughed, and she just looked at me. And she says, "I've never seen guys so so happy to lose money in my life." <laughs> she said, "What's going on with that?" I said, "Well, I did buy a pizza." She said, "Yeah, but you still won like two hundred dollars." I said, "Well, 
They learned a lesson. And they were both very good players, but they got on that nine-foot table, and they just were lost. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a whole lot of table to cover. Yeah, it's a lot of different from that seven-foot table. Yeah. Have you ever played on a nine-footer? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I played on the diamond, like, frequently when we were at Hillsborough yeah. Billiards playing on a league. Yeah, that's the table today is the diamond. It used I, to be Brunswick Gold Crowns. I just tried to get better on it because it was, like, it was harder. And, like, so if you could make shots on that table, like, you were yeah. going to be a lot better on the smaller tables. Yeah, especially the longer shots were mm-hmm. easier on a smaller table. Um. Where was I? Oh, in 78. Uh, oh, that first year was terrible. But my my pay scale with Rustoleum, I made, uh, they gave me a salary, and then I made commission, and then there was a bonus at the end of the year. We bought the house in uh, January. But the bonus wasn't paid till like October. So I told Linda, she said, she was, well, we were both kind of scared to death when we signed that loan. You know, we got 30 years to, mm-hmm. you know, a debt here. But, you know, that's what I wanted. I wanted a house. I'd never had my own room before, more or less a house. So, so we did it and we struggled terribly, paycheck to paycheck. And I know one time we even cashed in, well, they were Eagle Stamp books. You guys don't even probably know what those are, but. You go to a store and get what they called Eagle Stamps, and you fill the book up, and it was like $2.50 or something like that, that you'd get cash for yes. it. The promotions like they do, you know, nowadays in, in the stores. And I think we had like $15 in Eagle Stamp books one time. We cashed in just so we could buy some food to get it be until I got paid the next time. And it was things like that that, you know, uh, and it was really tough, but we naturally we did make it until I got my bonus. And after that, we had that in the bank because it was a pretty good chunk of money. And then it was a little bit easier from going in. And then, of course, I kept doing better and better and making a little more money. But that first year in that house, it, it took everything we had to, yeah. you know, a lot of sacrifice there. Money means necessary, though. Like, you were going to, you know, take care of it. Like, you had people yeah. to support and, you know. Yeah. Gonna make it happen. Yeah, kids might even go on without some things there, but I mean, we did the best we could, and and I and I thought it was good, not only because I wanted a house, but for the kids, you know, to have a place. And yeah, well, I'm like honestly, like you know, you did some, you know, there there were a lot of character driven moves, like you did, like whenever you had, you said you had uh, that pool stick that you like sold so you could buy them Christmas presents that one year. Yeah, mm. yeah, that Jimmy Rumpy. Yeah, I sold it for $200. I still remember that. And actually, there there was somebody that heard I was selling that stick, and he offered to give me $200 and pay him back. You know, cause He said, you don't want to sell that stick. I said, no, I don't want to borrow $200 from you. I never borrowed any money from anybody. Yeah. And I think he was a little hurt, but I just didn't, you know, I guess I had too much pride. I just didn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that could be a thing for he, sure. I mean, he was willing to give me the money, and then I could have kept a stick, and then he said, you can pay me back a little bit at a time. I didn't want that. I, I just wanted to be done, and I like paying for that. You know how I am even today. I, I get a bill in the mail, I just pay today. Yeah. That's, that's the way I do it. Well, and, that, was, uh, that was a sacrifice you were making. You're like, well... Gonna give yeah. him Christmas presents. So put the pool stick up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bought another one later. I want yeah. some money playing pool, and I bought a nicer one, which you now own. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I bought so, a nicer one. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, it, no, it's a nice one. So, 
<laughs> you know, it, it all works out, and uh, yeah. and it was fine. I mean, it, it's just a thing. It's just yeah. a cue stick, you know. It's nice, you know. You liked it, but it's like, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. That goes yeah. along with yeah. any time in life. It was worth selling it just to watch the kids' faces on Christmas when they opened their presents. Oh yeah, you know? yeah that's that parental <laughs> instinct, kind of. Yeah. Just like by any means necessary, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, the one time at the house there, it needed a paint job. So, of course, I was younger then and I could do that. So I was painting the house. I get up on the ladder and I had the ladder. I had a board under it to level the yard, you know, so I wouldn't fall off the ladder. Well, next thing I know, the ladder's shaking, and I look down, and Brian is kicking his board out from underneath this <laughs> ladder. <laughs> and I start screaming for Linda, you know, come on here. <laughs> I guess he thought it didn't belong there, so he was going to take care of that for me. The story made me crack up was the other day you were telling was the uh, was the Catholic priest. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was him. Wasn't yeah, it? we were so proud of Brian that day. Yeah, he was. Uh, well, we were at a meeting with the church. We belonged to St. Vincent and Paul Society over at St. David's, and we were having a meeting, and the one of the priests was there. And the first time he, I guess he'd seen Brian. I, I get maybe he was a new priest. Father Tom is what his name was. And he says to Brian, he says, "What's your name?" And Brian looks at him and says, "Poop." <laughs> yeah, I told I told Father Tom. I said, "His mother and I are really proud of him." Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he, you know, he shrugged it off. He, you know, I don't know how old Brian was. Um, you know, six. I, I don't I don't really remember what year that was. Yeah, it's understandable. What do you expect a six year old boys? That's that's the humor. Right now. Yeah. Poop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and when we lived out there, of course, Arnold always had legal fireworks, so we always had 4th of July at my house. Yeah. Uh, it's a good place to have it. My brothers nice... and sisters and the kids come out. Yeah, have a nice barbecue day with the fam. Oh, yeah. Have everybody over. Yeah. Yeah, People we had plenty of those. We had, a lot of, we had a lot of good times on the 4th of July. But yeah, that was kind of my thing. You know, my deal once a year anyway was to have the 4th. Because it was legal to have fireworks out here. Yeah. And you guys had your house, and that was the, you had all those. Yeah. 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 Jefferson County, you can still raise hell out here yeah. on the 4th of July. <laughs> you still can, yeah. Um, so I had another thing to mark off my list yeah, by having a house. Um, if you want to take a quick break, we can do that. Yeah, Come let's back do that. in. Uh, okay. Where are we rolling, cutting out here? We're about... 1978. 1978. 1978. Okay. Uh, Alrighty. Well, we will be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, we are back, and I believe we left off in, was it 1978-ish, 9, 79? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's where we were. But what I remember most about 79 was the Iranian hostage crisis. Do you guys know anything about that? Probably much vague no. details. Where they held uh, 50-something Americans hostage. Uh, they had a new government. The Shah of Iran was knocked out of office. And uh, Ayatollah Khomeini took over a real, you know, hardline religious group. Anyway, they hate the West, you know. So they uh, stormed the embassy and they took a lot of American hostages. 
and uh, Jimmy Carter didn't know how to handle it. And there was a failed rescue attempt. They tried rescuing him with the military, and that was a fiasco. And I don't know how many, six or eight of our soldiers died in that rescue attempt. Uh, so that really looked this made this country look bad, I think, you know. Within, um, of course, that was when Ronald Reagan came along. And, of course, he was talking tough, you know. And he said, well, the election was 1980, and the hostages were still being held. I don't know. It went for over a year they held them. And he uh, promised that he would have the hostages returned and that if they didn't return them, apparently we were going to go to war. I kind of do remember all this. Do you kind of remember that? Yeah. So he got elected, and uh, crazy thing, on election day, January 20th, well, it would have been 1981, he was elected in 80, uh, they released the hostages. I guess they didn't want to fool with Reagan. They (laughs) thought he might be a little bit tougher than Jimmy Carter was. I don't know if that's what, you know, exactly what happened, but uh, that's what it seemed like. Like, they didn't think Jimmy Carter was going to do anything. Like, the timing was no accident. Yeah, but you have to remember, too, we had that loss in Vietnam. You know, Mm. got out of there and uh, really didn't accomplish anything. It became communist government. Uh, I think it was 75 when they overran Saigon. So we were coming off of that, and I guess if you're sitting in the president's seat, you don't want to start another war if you don't have to. Yeah. But and on the other hand, you've got 50-something Americans over there that need to be rescued and come home, you know. Hope they don't kill them or something. Well, that would have run up on a war if yeah. they would have killed them. I'm sure even Jimmy Carter would have had to go to war then. Uh, anyway, that was the big news in 79. In 80, with Reagan's election, the uh, economy was still horrible, like we talked about. Interest rates at 16% for a mortgage, and there was nothing going on. Uh, so it was, not, it was not a good time for anybody, I guess. Uh, other than that, in 1980, I... I don't know what happened. That's probably when I bought my pool table. Around, I think it was about two years after we moved into the house. Star Wars: The Empire Strikes Back came out. In uh, what year was that? 1980. Oh, 1980. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Which was a, obviously a favorite of mom and Uncle Brian. Yeah. Oh yeah. No irony um, that you get back to the pool game. Yeah. You, The Empire Strikes Back. The Empire. Oh yeah. <laughs> Taking back the throne. <laughs> Your memory on that kind of thing is a lot better than mine. I mean, I remember the Star Wars movies and yeah. all that and how it changed movie making and sci-fi films. But You went to go take them, though. Uh, you guys like Star Wars. I did, players. yeah. I remember taking Brian. I don't know if Julie went with us or not. Yeah. That I don't remember. I know a neighbor and his son and Brian and I went to see it. Yeah. I do remember that. Uh, and like I said, the years, you're a lot better with those than I am. you got a fantastic memory. I don't know if my memory was ever as good as yours. <laughs> now I can blame it on age, but he's, yeah. he's just good with dates. Yeah, he is. Do you know that too? Yeah. When things are released and stuff all the time. Yeah. Uh, okay. Other than that, I don't. 
uh, remember much what happened in 1980. Uh, like I said, I think that might have been when I bought the pool table and got back into playing pool, started playing pool. And, of course, Brian wanted to learn how to play pool, you know. Yeah, kids were getting a little older. You could spend, yeah. spend a little time yeah. playing the game. It was a real small house. I don't even know if it was a 1,000 square foot. So uh, I fixed everything up in the in the basement, you know, and then put the pool table down there, and the kids had a stereo down there. So when their friends came over, and we had a lot of kids at the house, and you know, when they were always at our house, and maybe it was because of the pool table, you know, that was something for them to do. And then they could listen to music. And uh, so we wound up having a lot of neighborhood kids over there. And uh, some of them will still tell stories to your mom about them, the girls who came for like a pajama party or whatever, and we had birthday parties there. And, uh, Sherry Murphy, you remember her, your mom talking yeah, about her? Yeah, yeah. I just saw her. I hadn't seen her in years. I just saw her at St. David's uh, just a month or so ago. Uh, but she always talks about me, you know, or Julie tells me that. So, yeah, it was a place for the kids to hang out and, no one else had a pool table. And they all seemed to enjoy that. So, And that left Linda and I some privacy upstairs. We could watch TV without mm-hmm. being bothered with a whole house full of kids, yeah. you know, by having them have the basement. And luckily, that's another thing about buying a house, is you have to learn how to do everything if you don't have the money to pay somebody to fix things, you know. And the good thing about working for Rust-Oleum was I was in hardware stores and lumber yards, do-it centers, all day long. So I decided I wanted, when I started fixing up the basement, I just started picking all the brains of all these people that worked in these departments and these, you know, when I went to stud out the walls, that's okay. I had no idea how to do it. My dad was not handy, didn't teach me anything about that. He was in sales all his life, you know. Uh, so I'd go in and little by little I ask them, okay, how do I set out the walls? You know, how far apart do the studs have to be? And, you know, do I need to insulate if I'm underground and all of that? So that came in handy having, having that background, you know, being able to talk to these people that had all the knowledge and little by little I'd do it and then I'd take the next step and I'd go and ask whoever I thought would be a expert on that, how to put a ceiling in, you know, and hang the lights and. Uh, lay carpeting down and all of that had to be done and so I did it all myself uh, which I was proud of because like I said I didn't know what I was doing Uh, just bought some power tools and bought the lumber and paneling and did it you know and like I said I couldn't afford somebody to come in and just do it for me so I had to learn how to do it So then I guess we go probably into 81 was at that time was the worst year of my life. My dad died on December 1st, 1981, which is what, 41 years ago? Yeah. December 1st. When is December 1st? Couple days. Couple days. Yeah. So been a long time ago. Uh, I still remember that day. I was there. I was at his house the night before. He was not feeling well. I thought he had pneumonia, and he probably did. I don't know. Um, then the next morning I got a call, but I went to work anyway. I was still working for Rust-Oleum, and I was out in Eureka, and I stopped to get lunch. I got a hamburger. I remember it clearly. 
and I used a payphone there to call the house. And uh, my older brother was there, and he told me, you know, that things were not good and all that. And uh, so I went there. I I took off work that the rest of that afternoon, and I went to the house. And by the time I got there, he had passed away. He had refused medical treatment. Uh, my mom called an ambulance, and he said he wasn't going to go, and they told her as long as he's conscious. And he said, he's not going. They cannot legally take him to the hospital. So he passed away at home. And, uh, yeah, it was a rough time. It was, uh, I never lost anybody that close to me. That was the first time. Uh, like I told you, my grandparents, three of them were gone before I even remember I was small. Yeah. My one grandmother lived till. 1968 she passed away so I remembered her I was 16 so I remembered her and her house and all that but uh, uh, and that didn't even affect me I mean I was kind of sad you lose your grandmother but but when my dad died it was just devastating so uh, and I didn't know how bad it'd be it turned out to be pretty bad that year I had all kinds of uh, all kinds of problems and uh, I had, there were times I couldn't breathe, I couldn't eat. I was down to 147 pounds. Can you imagine being six foot two and 147 pounds? So it's probably around where I am, just not at a normal oh, yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll gain weight when you get older. Don't worry about that. Yeah, that's <laughs> Actually, that's when I started gaining weight. Was that year was just. I had what they call panic attacks. I thought I was having a heart attack. And it felt real, but I, you know, it wasn't, obviously, at the time. Um, so I went through that whole year just miserable. Just, it was just, you know, an awful time. Did this uh, inevitably, like, affect your decision to stop smoking the next year? It did. That was that was part of it, yeah. Um so finally, I think it was around, that was December of 81. I'd say it was around October, sometime around October, November of 82, which wasn't quite a year uh, later. And I was at home, and uh, your Nana, my wife, Linda, grabbed the car keys and she said you're coming with me and I said what do you mean I'm coming with you and she said you're coming with me I said where are we going she said we're going to the doctor I said I don't have an apartment she said I made one for you she said you you can't go on like this you can't just keep losing weight and not eat and, and work she said you just can't do this you have to do something about it so I went with her and I talked to the doctor, and well, and not too many people have ever heard this. I don't even know if people in my family know it, but he sent me to a psychiatrist. He said, you're, you're depressed. So I went to a psychiatrist, talked to him. He gave me medication, and I'll tell you what, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have ever suffered from depression. Uh, that was the only time I did. I'd seen it in Linda off and on my whole yeah. life. She was prone to depression. So I knew it wasn't pretty. But I went there, and he gave me some, I even remember the name of the medicine. It was called Cinequan. 
And I took that for two weeks, and I had to go back and see him. And <laughs> it was just amazing. I would be working during the day. My thoughts just changed completely. They went completely positive from being negative. Uh, my physical symptoms were going away. I was starting to eat. Matter of fact, the medicine makes you eat. It, it gives you an appetite. I gained like 30 pounds in a month on this medication. The, the kids could tell you the story about that. One day I ate, I ate 10 biscuits. I ate all the biscuits. And they were, they were yelling at London. They said, Dad ate all the biscuits. Mom. Oh, he couldn't eat all those biscuits. <laughs> I did. So, <laughs> so the weight was coming back. And it turned out I, I stayed on that for, uh, oh, just for a few months on a low dose. And, uh, and the doctor knew right away. I went back two weeks later, and he just looked at me. He said, we're feeling better, aren't we? I said, oh, yeah, we're feeling a lot better. And he said, well, I said, you need to stay on the medication for a little while. And uh, he told me something I didn't know. He said something like, I forget the percentages, 95% or 90% of people that have depression or mental illness of some kind can be controlled with medication. And he said, the rest of the people, you can't even help them. So... He said, fortunately, he said, you know, the medication's working for you and you're going to be fine. And he was very positive and, and I felt real good about it. And, uh, and things did get better. They just got a lot better. Um, but I guess you learn lessons in life. And that was a lesson that, <laughs> that I learned the hard way. I thought, why did I suffer that whole year when I could have done that a lot sooner, you know, but... And if it wasn't for Linda, I don't know when I would have gone to the doctor, if ever, you know. So, um, 81, whatever. Well, then we went into 82. Yeah. And, um, um, trying to think about 82. It was a bad year economically, again. <laughs> Uh, Reagan was president. He was doing tax cuts, doing everything, and trying to think. And things did eventually get better. The economy really picked up, and uh, but '82 was not not a good year. It's a long stride of bad years. Yeah. Economically. Yeah, you know, you had maybe a couple get a little bit better, but I don't know. And like we're going through bad times now with prices, and the, of course, gasoline prices are coming down. Uh, but we'll see what happens. But People need not to get too upset, I guess, because it, it will come back. Things will get better. and You know, hopefully prices will go down. And I mean, you've seen it so many times. By oh, this yeah. Point. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah, 82. It's kind of a wave always. Just Yeah. Well, probably where we'll, the smoking thing, I was going to say, you stopped. Like, you stopped for 10 years, like, which will probably you know be where we end tonight like we're you know that's when i quit smoking i can't remember exactly yeah but it was sometime when i was having the physical symptoms like a heart attack and chest pains and all that i thought yeah. this is from smoking you know and and that's that's the reason i gave them up well it really wasn't from that it was from other things uh but i believe that that's what i thought and that's when i quit and i quit until 92 yeah 10 years which probably helped in the long run, just taking a lot of time, you know, like away from smoking anyway. Yeah. And then 82 was, uh, 
I'm pretty sure I had the pool table. I'm almost positive because I think that's the year I met Dave. I was in 82. I think he was 16 years old. He might have been 17. Maybe it was 83. I, again, the years I, I'm not sure about. Where'd you meet him? Uh, at Arnold Bowl. I was, I was playing pretty much pool. Of course, I was playing a lot at home. I had guys come over. And, of course, I was teaching Brian to play. And so I spent a lot of time at home practicing, and I and I got pretty good, but I wasn't really going out and playing tournaments, or I didn't really feel like I was really good enough to do that. Uh, but I was enjoying it. I loved playing pool. I had my whole life. It was a big part of my life. There were times I, you know, let it go. Money was still tight, so I really couldn't go out and do a lot. Anyway, they had, uh, I was going to Arnold Bowl once in a while and playing over there. They had the nine-foot gold crowns, which are beautiful tables. And I love playing on those tables. So I would go in there and play. And uh, So then it comes up. Uh, there was a guy named John uh, who organized a big pool tournament at Arnold Bowl. Uh, the owner was Ted. Don't remember Ted's last name. Real nice guy. Anyway... They organized this pool tournament, and they were going to have 64 players, so the top players in Missouri and Illinois, or part of Missouri and Illinois, whatever. I don't know how far they advertised or how many they drew, but it was going to be the top players in the two-state area. So, uh, so they got that going, and I was playing pool in there one night, and Dave comes up to me and introduces himself, and he said, I would like you to teach me how to play pool. He'd been playing pool for about six months. He was a great bowler. That was his game, was bowling. But then he, he fell in love with pool, I guess, and he, he wanted to play it. And uh, so I told him, I said, I can do that. And well, then he mentioned it. He said, well, I'm gonna play in that tournament they're having here. <laughs> well, I just laughed. I said, you were playing six months and you're going to play in this tournament? I said, do you realize that these are going to be the top players in the two states, you know, in Missouri and Illinois? Yeah. I know. I said, listen, buddy. I said, I've been playing pool since I was 13 or 14 years old and playing a lot of pool. I said, I'm not getting in this tournament. And I said, you, you really got to think about that. And the tournament was like a month or so away. It was... Not going to be held right away. Maybe two months. I don't even remember that. And he said, you're not going to play it? I said, no. But I said, but let's play. I said, and I'll show you some things and, you know, whatever. Show you how to use English. Show you how to draw the cue ball and, you know, do this and that. I said, okay. So we hit it off. You know, real nice guy. A lot younger than I was, you know. But that's fine. You're playing pool. It doesn't matter. You're just having fun. He enters the tournament. Well, the guy that owns the uh, bowling alley, Ted, came up to me and he said, I understand you're not going to play in the tournament. I said, no. I said, I don't think I'm good enough to play in it. I said, these guys, you're going to get some good players in here. I don't know if you know that or not, but they're going to be good players, really good players. And, uh, well, I think Ted might have known, too, about my financial thing or something. He said, I'll pay your entry fee to play. He said, I want you to play. He said, you're the best player that comes in here. He said, I think you ought to be in it. I said, it's not about the entry fee, Ted. It was like $30 or something. It wasn't a big entry fee. 
I said, I, I just don't think I'm ready, and I just, I just don't want to do it. I said, I'm going to come up and watch, though. Anyway, I guess I talked to Linda, and she said, why don't you just play in it, you know? So I did. I went up and paid it, and Ted was all excited. He said, oh, man, you know, he said, you can represent Arnold Bowl because you come in here and play. And most of the other guys that came that were in that tournament did not play there. Well, Dave entered the tournament, too. <laughs> so anyway, we won't go too much longer on this story, but at the end of the tournament, there were 64 players that started the tournament. I finished number seven out of 64, which was pretty remarkable, I thought, because I didn't think I was playing that good. And Dave finished number 12. Not bad. That was incredible. <laughs> that was incredible. And he was thrilled. He was thrilled. You guys work a lot, like, on the way to the tournament? I mean, like, just yeah. put over the several oh, yeah. weeks? He started coming over to my house and playing. And, yeah. and, and, and sometimes we play up at the bowling alley. And... Uh, uh, but that was, I'll tell you, I think Dave, as far as I can remember, he was probably the most natural pool player that I ever saw. You know, just starting out, mm -hmm. he had a great bridge, good stroke, you know, good concentrate, everything. I mean, he, he learned quickly, you know, you tell him how to draw the cue ball or do this or that, right-hand English. And, uh, he, yeah, he really picked it up quickly. Uh Anyway, so we both had a good time. And after that, uh, Ted talked to me and he said, I would like you to run pool tournaments on a regular basis here, maybe once a month. Or He said, it doesn't have to be as big as this one, like 64 players. But he said, even if you get, you know, half of that, whatever, just uh, he wanted to bring businesses naturally and buy food and drinks and, you know, and the pool, pay for pool and that. So, you know, it was business for him. And we worked out a deal. He said he would give me so much, you know, for doing it and all that. And uh, so I started that. So I started uh, running the pool tournaments over there. And we got a lot of good players. They came up from Farmington. They came from over in uh, O'Fallon, Illinois. Uh I won't name all the names. You guys wouldn't know them anyway. But, you know, good players. Yeah. Um, so we did that. We And we would uh, we started handing out trophies, and then there was a cash prize. And the cash prize was uh, determined by how many entries we had, how many entry fees. And then we split the prize money. We, put, we paid the top three places, first, second, and third, and also gave them a trophy. And the guys really enjoyed it, and they liked those nine-foot tables and it was a good atmosphere, you know, and they had good hamburgers and fries, and it was a good time. And, and all these guys, you know, really, really enjoyed it. Um, we had one time, uh, Louis Roberts, they call him St. Louis Louis, who I played pool with when I was 15 and 16 years old. He became one of the greatest nine ball players in the world. He came in to enter the tournament one day. And I had spots open. And I said, Louis, I said, I can't let you in. I mean, he was just, these guys were good, but Louis, he was <laughs> yeah. the cream of the crop, yeah. you know, creme de la creme. 
I just couldn't see letting him in because... He would just smash the competition. Well, he was so good <laughs> when he was younger. He played in the state tournament in Columbia, and he and he won it five years in a row, and he never lost a match in five years. Not even a match. He went through and just won every time. And, and after that, uh, Phil was the guy's name that owned Columbia Billiards. He ran the state tournament for years. They don't do that anymore. It's out of Springfield somewhere. Uh, they closed that place, I think, in Columbia. Uh, but they changed the, the rules that you could, uh, something like you couldn't repeat or, or you couldn't repeat, you had to take a break for five years. You, you know, you couldn't win it more than like once every five years. I don't remember the exact things. So that that's how good this guy is. I mean, he's just, you know, above everybody. And I said, I can't, I, I can't let you in. Uh, and then one of the guys said, why don't you let him in? And I said, because. He'll win every game and there's, there'll be no chance of anybody else winning. And I said, that's really not fair to you guys, you know. Well, some of them just wanted to have the chance. They were willing to pay the entry fee to play with St. Louis Louis Roberts, you know. So I took a vote. I said, okay. I called everybody into the bar and sat them down and I said, Here's the story. I said, you all know St. Louis Louie. He wants to play in the tournament today. I want to know how many want to let him in and how many don't. And the majority wins. And if you say so, he's welcome to play. The majority said, let him play. Mm-hmm. And like I said, but think about it. You know, the chance to play with one of the best players in the world for a 15 or $20 entry fee. Yeah. That, There's so many people who just win, you know. Wanted to get beat by him, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, they'll take the <laughs> ass whip. Yeah. Well, I know a guy right now that I see at the rec center every now, and I've known him for years, and he goes to the Derby Classic, which is all top players, yeah. pros, every year, and pays a $100 entry fee, has no chance of winning. He's rated about the same I would be on a league if I went to play on a league like a six. And, But he says, I get to play the top players in the world for a hundred bucks. He said, I'm willing to do that. He said, I know I'm going to lose, but so I'm guessing that was the thinking that day. And the outcome was Louis never lost a game. (laughs) He went through the whole field and you know, I mean, it was predictable. So, but I, I let the guys decide. Yeah. And that's what they decided. And we went with it. So, that's fair, though. I mean, if the majority does vote, like, yeah, you know, it's like, all right, let him in. He's gonna squash everybody. Yeah. But you know, maybe they just wanted to, like, honestly, just being in the, in the matchup with him would be kind of interesting. Though it's like, all right, well, I guess I'm just gonna sit here and watch him kick my ass. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if that's one of your major things, like one of your major interests and hobbies, and like you love that, and he's one of the best at it, then yeah, yeah, you know, you would take the opportunity to you be get able like to a world class. Yeah, you get like a world class like competitor like playing in there. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what the feeling was, and and it, I mean, I hey, I love watching Louis Roberts play pool. I mean, I still do. You see me even today watching yeah. the top pros on YouTube. I still enjoy the game, and and I try to think, okay, how are they going to play position to see if they would do it the way I would do it, you know? And so yeah, that that's pretty neat. I I would love to play with Efren Reyes or. Shane Van Boning or, you know, uh, any of these top guys. You know, it would be fun just oh, yeah. – you may not get a shot, but it would be fun to watch <laughs> him run rack after rack. Uh, 
so that went on for a while in the, in the mid eighties. Uh, Dave and I were, and Dave started helping me with the pool tournaments and, uh, uh, we would take care of things together and we'd always meet for breakfast and his dad would come to breakfast and usually buy breakfast for us. And, uh, Dave's dad was a wonderful guy and really supported Dave and his pool playing. And Dave then did buy a pool table, put it in his basement in his house. Uh, actually he was over here. Oh, I don't know. A couple months ago or so, just stopped by one night. We played a couple hours downstairs, and, and that was fun. Uh, so we had a lot of uh, uh, a lot of good times there at Arnold Bowl, and, and I met a lot of good players. And, you ran quite a few tournaments. Yeah, yeah, and there were some guys that started hanging around there after that. Even like during the week, and when tournaments weren't playing, they just liked the tables and. Um, there was one guy, Steve Shabansky was his name, and I was playing him one night. We were playing eight ball for $2 a game. You know, it wasn't much. I was up $32. So I meant I won 16 more games than he had. And it's, I don't know how long we were playing. And Dave comes in, and, and uh, I was shooting when Dave comes in, but Steve was over there talking to Dave. He knew Dave. You know, Steve played in the tournaments. and uh, Dave says to Steve, he says, how you doing? And Steve says, oh, he says, I'm holding my own. And Dave says, good. So then it's Steve's shot, and I walk over, say hi to Dave. And Dave said, uh, Dave tells me, he said, well, Steve says he's holding his own. And I said, well, maybe. I said, we're playing for two bucks a game. I'm up $32. So <laughs> Dave starts laughing. He said, well, that's not holding your own, is it? I said, not in my book. Uh, but he was a good player. I like playing him. But we had, yeah, we had a lot of good guys come in there. And while I was playing there one time, or running the tournaments, one of the two, somebody mentioned a bar down in Crystal City called Kenny Silver Bullet. And they said he has pool table, or pool tournaments on, I, th I think it was, I think it was Sunday night. I'm not sure. Anyway... Five dollar entry fee, and he guarantees a hundred dollar prize, regardless of how many people play or whatever. Well, that was unheard of. You know, usually people would go. You know, they, you'd get they divide the entry fees up, and that's how you'd win the money. But he was guaranteeing a hundred bucks. It only cost me five dollars to play, because still, I, you know, money was tight. Things were not really good, and I remember this was not too long before Christmas. So I went down there one night. Dave and I went down there one night. And uh, I paid my $5 and Dave paid his. And I won the tournament. I got the 100 bucks. So I come home, gave the $100 to Linda. I said, buy the kids presents for Christmas. It's getting that time of year, you know, and that was extra money. So I went down the second week and played again. And I won the tournament, won the $100. <laughs> So I went home and gave the money to Linda. Same thing. I said, buy Christmas presents with it, and we don't have to take it out of our budget, you know. Okay. Well, I won't go on, but I did that four weeks in a row, and then they wouldn't <laughs> let me play anymore. I think that's kind of how it go, though. You can only do it so many weeks in a row till they're like, all yeah. right, we're... <laughs> The competition's not on your level here, obviously. You're done. Money yeah. one is twice <laughs> as sweet as money earned. Yeah. We're getting into that right. here pretty soon, too. <laughs> Why well, did that happen to me around that same time? Kenny Vaughn, who has Kenny's now down here in yeah. Ironheart, 
he had a bar called 231 on Telegraph and Jeffco. And he would come into Bowling Alley and he'd say, why don't you come down and play my tournament on a Saturday afternoon or something? I think it was like $5 entry too. It was, you know, it was cheap entry. I said, okay, Kenny, I'll do that. I said, I'll. so one Saturday, I guess I wasn't busy and I guess I had $5 and I went over to Kenny's at 231 and gave him my entry fee. And I was sitting there drinking a soda and he comes over and he hands me my $5 back. And I said, well, what's that for? He said, I can't let you in. I said, why? He said, because if you play, the rest of these guys aren't going to play. <laughs> and I looked around and I said, I don't know these guys. He said, they know you from Arnold Bowl. And Ooh. <laughs> so all that time he wanted me to come over his place and play and, and then I couldn't and then I couldn't play in a tournament. I think it was flattened the competition. <laughs> the whole area. It's like we're done with this guy. <laughs> yeah. And now that we're on Kenny Silver Bullet, that's where I met John Kite. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Who we later played who we later played uh league with in you were on a league twenty fourteen billiards. Yep. So I met John there. He played in the tournament. And the week after that, of course I had won the tournament. The week after that, John Kite walks in, he's got another guy with him. And he brings him over to me. And this guy says, is this the guy you've been telling me about? And John said, yeah. He said, well, if he plays pool like you used to, yeah, I want him on the team. <laughs> well, it was a guy named Alex Mutt, who I knew growing up as a kid. He lived in the old neighborhood. Actually, I was friends with his little brother, Roy. Uh, Alex, would he uh, had a league down in Bonterre, Missouri. And that's where John Kite, he played on his team. So Alex, you know, we kind of reminisce about things, about our way billiards and all that, and we're talking. He said, I want you to come and play on team. He said, you ever played league before? I said, no. He said, I, I, it's called, was it the Bush League at that time? Anheuser-Busch ran this league all over. And uh, I said, well, I don't know. You know, it was something new to me. And I said, well, where do you play out of? He said, well, the Bonterre area. And I just started laughing. I said, I'm going to drive to Bonterre to play pool? I don't think so, Al. <laughs> I'm sorry, Al, but it ain't happening. Oh, come on. He said, well, I got a team put together. He said, I think if you get on a team, he said, you're an unknown. We could bring you in at a low handicap. You know, he's telling me all that. He knows all the rules and all the details. Anyway, after some time, I agreed to it. I said, look, I'll play one session, and then I'm done. I said, I'm not going to be driving that far to play pool. I can play pool up here, or in my house. He said, it's a deal. So I went down there. John Kite was on the team. Well, there's a total of eight players. And I think I showed you the newspaper clipping when they took yeah. our picture, all of us. And So anyway, so I went down there and played, and... There were some good players down there. There was Vic Jenkerson from Farmington that owned a bar called Cousins, and he was a top player. Uh, Blackie Lasour, he was a guy that my brother Jim used to play. He was a top player in the country back in the 60s and that. Of course, he's an older man now, you mm -hmm. know, but he still plays good. you got to watch him. So they had some good players on this league. 
Uh, anyway, uh, we wound up winning a division. We were number one in, in, in that division. And there are divisions all over the area, you know. So that put us into a playoff. So we went to the playoffs and we won that. So we advanced a little farther. And then they had a, um, uh, it was called a national qualifier. It was at the Holiday Inn in uh, St. Peter's. St. Peter's, Missouri, O'Fallon, Missouri, somewhere out there. I don't remember exactly. It's off of 70, Holiday Inn. And they had all the tables set up there. Well, so if we won there, we get to go to the Nationals, which was going to be held at the Omni Hotel down in downtown St. Louis. So everybody was pumped up and we were, everybody's doing, we're doing good. We're doing good. Everything's going well. I haven't got to play yet, but everybody's winning so far and we're, you know, we've gone two or three days and we keep advancing and advancing. Comes to the last day, we're playing. And I don't remember what the score was. All I do is I remember Bill Richardson coming up to me and Bill said, Don, if, if you win your match, we'll go to the Nationals. And I said, man, that's a lot of pressure to put on me. <laughs> and yeah. he said, I'll tell you what. And Bill was a big old boy. He said, I'll tell you what. He said, you win this match. He said, I'm going to come over and kiss you right on the lips. <laughs> and I said, no, you aren't, big boy. I said, I could run faster than you. And he just laughed. So anyway, so it was my turn to play. So they call me and they uh, they let every player throw the 15 balls out on the table. It was eight ball. And run them, you know, practice. You had a practice rack. So this guy I'm playing throws the balls out, and he makes them all, and he motions to me, you know, I can go out and play my practice rack. And I don't even remember this, but John Kite remembers it. He said I threw 15 balls on the table and that I banked every ball in, never did shoot one straight in, and never missed a shot. Banked all 15 of them without missing. <laughs> he told Jack Neal's that story down in Hillsborough when I went down there that night to see him. Yeah. I don't recall. All I was concentrated on was winning. And I think I was a six at the time. I forget. I think this guy was a four. But I beat him six nothing, so it didn't matter what You locked it down, took it home, and won nationals. Or yeah. went, got you guys the nationals. So the we went to the, on the back. We go to the nationals, and here comes old Bill coming towards me. I said, get away from me. Well, the other guys are holding me down. They all grabbed me from behind. <laughs> he kissed me right on the lips. I said, you pervert. <laughs> he just laughed. He thought that was the funniest. And uh, Bill was a seven. He was a good player. I was rated a six, but I was kind of keeping my handicap down to, yeah. you know. But you can only do that so much. And that's what's wrong with leagues today is, uh, you know, people sandbag and you think you're playing a two and you're really not. They might be a four or a five, you know. Yeah. So we, uh, we got the trip to the Nationals. We were heading downtown at the Omni Hotel. And what a beautiful place. We walked in and all those pool tables. I thought, oh, this... That was the biggest stage I'd ever been in. I thought, I'm going to play in front of all these people. They had bleachers set up all around and everything. I thought, I'm going to be nervous. But uh, I wasn't. I was I was surprised. And, and even the guys on the team, they said, you don't even seem like you're nervous at all. And I said, no, I just want to win. And, of course, Al said, oh, we're going to win first place. We're gonna. I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. This started with 1,400 teams across the country. Now we're down to, I don't know how many was down there, but we're down to the, the best teams out of 1,400. 
I said, I don't know about winning first, but we need to try and win. So anyway, we did good, and uh, uh, I never lost a match. I won every match I played. But about the, the day before the last day, I think it was, there was a guy on the team named, named Harold, not a very good player. <laughs> and, Al had, and Al had played him. Well, you know, there's some you have to have weaker players on the team because you can only play a certain handicap. Yeah, you can yeah. only play 23 points, so you can't have five fives playing or five sixes. So you have to have twos and threes and fours, and you have to have yeah, lower yeah, players to yeah. meet the criteria. And that's what it's all about, kind of evening things out, and you know. That's it, why when we were on John's team, like we were all like young in the process, and we were all like twos, and he starts, yeah. he's like a six, yeah. Because yeah. he would win every match that he right. played. Right. <laughs> He'd get schooled <laughs> yeah. at least for a while. So I was really happy. I was, I was, that might have been some of the best pool I've ever played was during that. And it came at the right time. It did. Yeah. But the day before the last day, we had a match and Bill came over to me and he says, You realize Harold hasn't played? I said, Yeah, I do. Harold's a nice guy, you know, really nice guy. Just not that good a pool player. And he's okay, but mm-hmm. so Bill and I came to the conclusion that we were going to tell Al if he doesn't play Harold, we're not playing. He didn't like that at all. <laughs> Al said, I can't play Harold. He'll lose. We're going to win this thing. We're going to take first place. I said, I don't care. Harold's part of the team. He has to play. And Bill said the same thing. So Al's got his two best players telling him they're not going to play if he doesn't play. If he doesn't play Harold, he played him, and he won. Harold did? Yes. Oh, he wow. Won. He won. He was so excited. Harold with the big upset. So excited. <laughs> Unbelievable. He was so happy. And uh, Bill and I were happy for him. But that's part of the team. If you're on a team, you need to have a chance to play. Yeah, you're trying to win, but, you know, uh, he was part of the team all session. He needed to play, and, and Bill and I thought that was the right thing to do. Yeah. <coughs> so we stood our ground, and Harold won, and that was probably the biggest moment of that man's life because he loved playing pool. <laughs> so the next day is the finals. And we're in, uh, I don't know how many teams were left, probably six. 1,400 yeah, I That's think there were long. six teams left. That was the final day. So I get up and going to get ready and go down. I think we started fairly early in the morning, if I mm-hmm. remember. And uh, Linda's not going to work. She never takes a day off work. I said, what are you doing? You Aren't you supposed to be working? She said, no. I said, you're, you're supposed to work. Nope. She said, I'm going with you. She never went and watched me play pool. She said, if you went first place in the country, I want to be there. (laughs) So she she called in sick to work. So she came down and she sat in the bleachers with Rita, which was Bill's wife. Uh, The four of us used to go out a little bit together, out to dinner. and uh, They were really nice people. So she was sitting up in the bleachers with uh, Bill's wife, and we were playing. And actually, actually, Al started uh, Bill first game. 
Well, Bill's a seven, you know, highest handicap on a team. Oh, you know what? I might have been a seven, two. They moved me up during the tournament. So I guess I was a seven, two then. Because uh, I remember them moving me up. Because Al came, I said, they moved you up to a seven. Okay. What do you want me to do? Lose? I mean, you know. Yeah. And like I said, I was playing good. We're losing I games. Here we go. She's yeah. episode. Nobody asked. Alexa, be quiet. <laughs> um, so Bill gets up and plays the first game. And there's five ma- five players have to play. Or until... Oh, did, I forget now. Five. I don't know. I think five did have to play. And then it was the best out of that that would win the whole match, you know. Anyway, uh, so Bill Bill was put up first, which was probably a good idea. And they put up their best player against him because they figured, I guess, he was the best. And this guy on the other team, Every time Bill would rack the balls and he'd go sit down, this guy would go up and look at the rack and he'd call Bill over and say, can you re-rack those, you know? And, and that's okay if the balls are loose and that. But he did this a couple times and it was getting on my nerves, you know. I didn't really, I didn't like it. And I know Bill was, he was not happy. He didn't say anything, but he was not happy about it. And I don't know if the guy was doing it just to piss Bill off and make him play worse, you know, or yeah. what. I don't know if it was if that was the object of his rudeness, but so I thought, okay, they want to play like that, we can do that. Anyway, Bill winds up losing. He loses the match to this guy. The guy was really good that he played. Bill didn't have much chance, so I played the next guy, and I win the break, and he racks the balls and he goes and sits down. I called him over. I said, could you re-rack those? They don't really look tight to me. And I looked up in the bleachers and Rita, Bill's wife, just smiled at me. She knew what I was doing. I was getting back for Bill. <laughs> he sat down again. I went back up and looked up. I said, they're really still not tight. Can you rack them again? <laughs> this guy was getting pissed now, but they did it to us. Yeah. Anyway, I wound up winning that match, but... At the end, we lost, and we wound up in third place. But that is one hell of a finish. Finishing the so, top three yeah. in the whole country. How many? 1,400? It started with 1,400 teams. Yeah. Yeah. Finishing Across the years. country. They played in all different you know, states. You guys had to beat a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people beat them. <laughs> and Al was upset that we didn't yeah, take Minnesota first place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Al was upset that we didn't take first place. I said, Al, I, mean, I didn't. It would be though if you if you finish third. You get that like, close. How could we? Not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> I bet know. it was hard comp like competition by then though. I mean, oh they yeah, were, they were like, oh, yeah. you guys had to be playing. You guys were just riding a wave <laughs> of like elite yeah. play for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But that is, I mean, that's definitely a finish to be proud of. Like you had to beat a lot of the best players like in the leagues across the country. Yeah, you know that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that weekend so much. You know, like I said, having all those people and all those pool tables and all those good players, and it was just, it was just a lot of fun. You had yeah. to like the peak two of one of your passions, like at a time like when it was you know at a prominent level and like you were playing. Yeah, 
you were playing that good, you know? When was yeah. that about? That was like... Uh, that was 80, 88. Okay. Yeah. Maybe 89 when they played at the session. You know, sessions overlapped. You have a fall session. I think we won it in the fall, but then... No, we won the winter session. And then I guess they played it, I think, in the summer. They played the playoffs downtown. Yeah, I think it was in July. So that was after pools started, like, booming again and everything. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had a poster that advertised it. Mm-hmm. My brother Ed asked me to get him something from there, and I brought him the poster, and I never got myself one. The color money? No, or, no, oh. the poster advertising oh, okay. the, the national tournament, the yeah. Bush League tournament. <clears throat> so I just asked Steve recently, I said, do you have that poster that was down in your deck? Because he took Ed's pool table. He said, no. He said, I don't know, Don. He said, I don't know where that's at. He said, I'll look for it and see if I can find it. He said, I I don't remember throwing it away or anything. So I don't know if Sandy did or I, I don't know. I wouldn't mind having it. You know? Yeah, that would be something worth having or <laughs> yeah. hold on to. But he asked me to get it, and I thought, yeah, okay, I'll get and I did. And I thought, why didn't I get myself one? You know, But I didn't. Yeah. So I don't have any souvenirs. For, well, I have, well, I don't even have that anymore. It would have been a cool thing to kind of have a – a token from like a little piece of memorabilia yeah. from the day to remember. Well, we had I had several trophies from there because you get a trophy when you win a division. We got a trophy for winning the national qualifier, and then got a big trophy for winning third place in the nationals. Mm-hmm. And that paid uh, three thousand dollars for third place. It was ten thousand for first, five for second, three thousand for third. We had to split that three thousand yeah. eight ways with the team. But along that route. Uh, every time you won, when you won a division, you got money. When you won, you know, certain playoffs, you got money. When you won the national qualifier, you got money. So we got more than that total. But that was the payout at the end. Yeah, I remember us getting paid, like, when we went to, uh, I guess, like, the next stage when we went to, like, St. Charles for it, like, that tournament. Yeah, yeah. Um, Were you playing Missouri 8-ball? Yeah. Yeah, Rusty Brandemeyer owns that. Yeah. Rusty was a great player. Um, I'm thinking about joining the Missouri Eight Ball League. Maybe in the, you should. I don't know. Should give it another go. Yeah, Kenny's always has. <laughs> Why not down here? Um, so I mean, I was gonna say by that point you were playing a lot more pool, mm-hmm. and you had always said like after the Color of Money came out in the theaters, Paul Newman, Tom Cruise, like pool just skyrocketed again, and everybody was yeah. filling the pool halls and putting money yeah. in the pool, and the tournaments started getting big again. Um, I mean, what was it like? What was the scene like during that time after? Well, after the color of money came out, because pool was on a downturn, really. Uh, pool was real big, like in the '60s and maybe in, even the '70s. But after that, I don't know. For some reason, it took a downturn. Uh, but that movie did more for pool than than anything I ever remember, other than maybe the Hustler. Yeah. When it came out in what '61. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and maybe that's why the '60s were so so many pool. That could be true too, yeah. you know. Uh, but I I do know then the '60s and '70s were especially I know St. Louis and East Coast were really big, Chicago really big pool downs. In in the pool side note, like the pool playing scenes were like really memorable in the Hustler, but like it was kind of really like a tragedy drama with like the pool scenes like kind of you know yeah. built around the movie and whatnot. Yeah. Because like every time you know something happened, like it was all it was all purposely uh, done. But yeah, yeah, like by the time the color money came around, I guess they figured it needed a resurgence. So they're like, "All right, let's make that sequel." 
Yeah, you started seeing uh, pool halls opening up. A lot of those guys I know, you know, where we went that day to ride the rail. Yeah. Uh, Larry LaBarber had the place with Mark O'Brien. And, uh, and then they had the sports center down in Afton. And you had Afton Billiard. I mean, they, they were opening up, you know, and business was great. You know, things were going uh, really well. Yeah, and that movie just sparked a lot of interest. You'd see a lot of 15 and 16, 17-year-old kids with like $200 cue sticks that their mom and dad yeah. bought them. And they didn't know, they didn't know how to draw the rock. Yeah, you know? that's what I, that's what just, I can imagine. Yeah, or didn't know what the rock was. <laughs> they didn't even know what the rock was. Yeah. No. So, it's a bunch of people because it's like a Tom Cruise and he's probably the cool guy at that point. It was the 80s. Tom Cruise, yeah. see a lot of young kids. He appealed to Those scenes were tremendous, though. The yeah. werewolves of London thing and dancing around. Oh, yeah. Little <laughs> sick. Yeah. Yeah. The swashbuckling shenanigans. Just yeah. flipping it around. What you got in that cute case, boy? In here? Doom. He just smiles. <laughs> yeah. He's like, come on, let's, let's play. He's like, yeah, let's yeah. play. We're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that, and you could see that at Ride the Rail at Larry's place uh, when I would go over there. And I didn't go over there a whole lot, but when I would, I mean, it was the majority of people in there were teenagers, you know. Oh, and yeah. it was all about that movie. It was, yeah. you know, followed that movie after it came out. Yeah, widely, like... I remember even reading, uh, after being, like, disappointed in the Oscars, like, so many years in a row, Paul Newman, like, stayed home the year that The Color of Money came out, and, like, then he finally won the award for Best Actor, like, yeah. for that role, and that yeah. was a Martin Scorsese, uh, Scorsese movie, too, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, um, which is kind of crazy, considering all the other stuff he's made, Oh but, yeah, that was a oh tremendous God. film. I was going to go back. I, I just remembered something about Kenny Silver Bullet. So I won it four, four weeks straight, and then he wouldn't let me play anymore, <laughs> which I understand. Uh, but the one week we were in there, I won the tournament, and then I went into – there were like two parts to it. I went over to the bar side, and there was a, a one pool table over there, and there were two guys playing. One is falling down drunk, and the other guy's on crutches. <laughs> Well, they're playing $5 nine ball. And I said, can I get in? <laughs> and they said, yeah, come on, you know, get your stick, come on in. So I'm back there playing. But then Dave Bosey's over. He, he didn't know where I went. He's over there on the other side. He, he looks at them guys, and he looks at me, and he said, are you playing for money? I said, $5 a game. With, with a cripple and a drug? <laughs> I said, that's classic. Make Christmas money days. He says, can I get in? I said, nope. <laughs> oh, my. Just imagining that scene, walking in like the back room. All right, he's playing over here. Yeah. <laughs> the guy is drunk and this other guy's got like a crutch. Come on. And we were in there. I think it was, a, it was the last week. There was another thing that happened. There was a guy named Sarge in there. Big old boy. And we were playing good player, and Dave and I were sitting at the table talking, and I wasn't playing, a, you know, you're taking turns playing the match. And mm. He comes over and sits down, and he said, I, I think uh, I think it's going to be you and me in the finals. I said, oh, do you? He said, that might happen. Yeah, he says, you play pretty good. I said, well, thank you. He said, I play pretty good too. Yeah, you do. He said, but you know something? He said, I'm going to win. And I said, 
I kind of chuckled. I said, well, I guess we're going to have to see how it ends, you know. He said, well, if I don't, he said, something like I'm just going to kill you or something. And yeah, I don't think he was kidding. <laughs> so he leaves, and I tell Dave, I said, if it winds up with me and Sarge in the finals, I said, you need to undo your stick, grab the butt of the stick. I said, if he comes up behind me with a knife or something, I said, you got to knock him out with the butt of the cue. <laughs> He says, Dave's like, kill you. Just so Dave's like, <laughs> Dave's like 21 years old, and he's like, man, I don't think I can do that, you know. <laughs> anyway, obviously, he didn't kill me. But I think I found out later there was two guys in there that I knew that owned a t- trucking company that I sold to mm-hmm. down there in Crystal City, and he knew this, Sarge, and I think he... I think he saved, maybe, I don't know if he saved my life, but he might have saved me from getting hurt real bad. <laughs> yeah. Did you uh, end up playing him in the I did at all? Did you? Oh, I, yeah. We got in the finals and I beat him. Wow. It, it worked out just like he said. Interesting. Yeah. It was crazy. And I did hear, well, I quit going down there because I couldn't, I couldn't play. But I did hear that a week or two after that, and I think it was through John, that Sarge did take a razor blade that got cut his face, put like 18 stitches in his face. So, so I don't know. was a little bit of a psycho. Oh, guy. yeah, he was. <laughs> well, this guy that I knew, and I can't think of his name, he was a foreman at the trucking company I called on. He was a big old boy, too. And I saw him after that night. Well, I would go in there and, you know, sell him things, so I would see him. And he told me, he said, you, he said, you don't want to mess with that Sarge. He says, he's nuts. He said, I've known him a long time. How do you get the name Sarge? Is I don't know. Sarge? I don't know. Did he have a buzz cut? I, don't, I, didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't really want to know anything about it. <laughs> didn't try to want to back it's wild that it worked out leader. just like that, though. He's like, yeah, it's it good. It did, yeah. It seemed like he was just poking and poking, like just trying to get you. You know it's going to be us in the, you know. There's a lot of trash talking goes on in pool. Oh, you know, yeah. people talk and they do, and and they'll talk loud enough that you that you can hear when you're shooting. So they're, they're trying to mess with your concentration. <laughs> you yeah. know, and they people do all kinds of antics to try and, oh, you know, yeah. like Bill at the Nationals. I think that's what that guy was trying to do was just get him riled up. You know? How much money am I gonna win tonight, Charlie? <laughs> 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 just comments <laughs> ten grand. <laughs> He's like just talking shit. He's like gonna win ten grand in one night. It's like, ooh. The other side to that, Dave and I. Well, Dave and I used to go down to the sports center, Larry and Mark's place, and play pool. We go, and I told you we went to Saratoga. Yeah. Well, one night, Dave and I. I probably told you about that. And one night, Dave and I go out to Saratoga. Uh, we're looking for easy action. You know, somebody does play nearly as good as we do. Well, we didn't find easy action that night. Well, when I got in there, I, I, I knew a guy that I'd played against in the tournament at Arnold Bowl. And I asked him if he wanted to play some nine ball, you know, and he said no. But he said, there's somebody here that will play you. And I should have guessed right there that I was in trouble, but I didn't. <laughs> so he brings this guy over and he says, you want to play nine ball? I said, yeah. He says, how about a race to nine for 50? I said, okay. <clears throat> Dave's taking half my action, $25. 25 I pay. I'm feeling good. I get up and I run the first two racks in a row. I said, this is good. This is good. 
Well, it turns out this guy knows how to run racks, too. Ooh. <laughs> he winds up beating me 9-7. to seven. This is not easy action. This guy is a three-time state champion. <laughs> Ooh. So that was, yeah, we walk out of there. Dave said, well, I guess that wasn't easy action. I said, no, it wasn't, Dave. I don't think he'll ever forget that. But it was an experience. Tough. That's how you not. I take those L's sometimes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the way not to lose money playing pool, I guess, is is to, to know who you're playing. That's what you said. You're like, you know, I need the right people, you know, who to pull. Yeah. Yeah. You got you, you to gotta be careful. You got to know. And I didn't know this guy. I did not know him at all. So I knew a lot of the players from coming in down there. And he, I guess he'd never come in on a bowl because I don't remember him. Yeah. Anyway, that was a lesson for me. <coughs> Speaking of lessons, though, wasn't there a t- uh, like an occurrence where you, uh, like, some young kid was just after you, and he's like, "Oh, let's play. We gotta, we gotta play for money." Oh, that was at Arnold Bowl too. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? that was like a 12 year old kid or 13. I don't know how old he was. He's a little bitty thing. Taught him a lesson. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he comes up to me and he says, "You want to play some pool?" And I slipped him. I said, eh, I don't know. Yeah, I was just, I was by myself. I was just practicing up at Arnold Bowl. He said, well, I'll play, I don't know, a dollar or two dollars a game. <laughs> and I just laughed at him. I said, kid, I don't want to take your money. I said, go play. Get away from me. He's insistent. What, you afraid to play me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that's... That's my whole thought process. Is I'm, I'm terrified of you. Uh, and I told him, I said, get a stick. And I don't know, I don't remember. It was a, like a buck or two a game. Anyway, I beat him out of 10 or $12 or whatever. Well, the owner comes over, Ted. And Ted comes over and he You're says. You're harassing little kids. He said, are you playing for money with him? <laughs> I said, Ted, he's a little brat. He came over and just pestered me and pestered me and wanted to play for money. And, I, you know, I said. I said, now he's going to learn a lesson. <laughs> he, said, he said, Don, he said, his dad is a real good customer in here. And he says, if he finds out he lost money playing pool, he's not going to be happy. I said, well, it isn't your fault. I said, the kid's got a big mouth and he's going to learn a lesson. Yeah. And I told Ted, I said, Ted, I'll give him his money back. I said, I'm not going to take the kid's money. I said, I'm taking it now, but I'm going to give it back to him when he runs out of money. Yeah. And I didn't, he didn't have a whole lot of money on it. Probably wasn't more than twenty dollars. And then I gave it back to him. I told him, I said, "Be best if you learn how to play pool first before you start going to play it for money." Well, and that's the thing. It's like it was his. It was fool's luck that he encountered you because a lot of people out there would not have been so nice. Yeah, he's no. I couldn't do it. I well, we talked about that before. I, I always had somewhat of a conscience, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's. Guys would lose. That's another her. character move, you know. You're like, okay, well, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you, and I'm gonna take all your money, but I'm gonna give you it back because now you learn, you know, hopefully what you're supposed to learn. Yeah. Unless he went back to somebody else after that and tried to play it for money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But. So that was pretty much the honor. I mean, was days. he decent at all? Or was no, no, he not was at a all. Young. <laughs> no, I wasn't even trying. I just, you know. I thought, this is ridiculous. But he just got on my nerve, and I thought, okay. Oh, yeah. Just young and cocky. He's like, I can yeah. beat anybody at anybody. <laughs> I don't think I was like that when I was his age. But 
Maybe I'll well, you it. said you had some antics, like when yeah. you were in there, and Doc was pretty entertained by them. Yeah. <laughs> and whatnot. <laughs> anyway, uh, where were we at? I was gonna say, well, I um, guess we were jumping around from '88, and we were well. That back was the mid. 86. That was the mid '80s. Yeah, yeah. Because um, we were yeah. running back to color money and everything. Um, so I mean, obviously, you got well into pool again towards the whole back half of the '80s and the whole you know mid '80s right. and whatnot. Right. Um. Yeah. Where does that bring us? And to? then I got back out of it when I started working for Superior because again I worked so many hours and I oh yeah yeah the jobs. And, so you had um, done at Rustolium at eighty four right? Eighty four. Okay, so yeah. job wise after that, yeah, that they closed the division in eighty four, and um, and then I had a call from a guy who was a distributor for Rustolium that was in uh, Cape Girardeau. But he did a little business up in the St. Louis area. Uh, it was called Heartline Hardware. Barney was the guy's name. He and his dad owned it. And he was a Rust-Oleum distributor, so I thought, well, this fits really good because I know Rust-Oleum product. This will be easy for me to sell. And he also offered a lot of hardware items, you know, nuts and bolts and just all kinds of things, you know. So he talked to Don Ludwig, my manager at, at Rust-Oleum, and uh, Don gave him my number, and he, and well, Don gave me a heads up, told me about him and everything. And so I agreed to go to work for him, and it was uh, basically a commission job. And I thought, well, I could probably do pretty well. And Don made it sound that way that I could, but what happened was, there were weeks I'd think I'd make five or six or seven hundred dollars, and he'd only have half the product to fill, so my paycheck would be half what I thought it was going to be. I had customers that had more inventory than he did on Rust Only <laughs> and on caulking and these other items. You know, he was a small <laughs> operation out of Cape. This is St. Louis. This is a lot different market than Cape Girardeau, mm -hmm. and you know, down there you can do pretty good with that and, and they're really close and they can deliver and all this and that you know it's a little different when you're coming to st louis so that didn't last the whole time i might have been there almost a year with him uh and he was a real nice guy you know and and it was fine and, and i sold some merchandise for him and all that but he just he just didn't have the inventory and i guess the capital he didn't have the money to stock the inventory and, you know, he's telling me, well, have the people wait a week or two. Well, they can't wait a week or two. They need inventory to sell. Uh, so that, that didn't last long at all. You know, I thought it would be a good deal, but it wasn't. <laughs> uh, so then when I left there, I went to Superb Oil in 1985. Uh, Mist Oil owned an oil company. They had Kendall Motor Oil. And she sold antifreeze and grease and all kinds of things like that. And I had the Southern Illinois territory. Um, she, yeah, she had. She was a sole distributor of Kendall Motor Oil, which you guys may not be familiar with, but they were the first oil company years ago that you could go two thousand miles on an oil change. Oil changes were done like every thousand miles or so. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. And, and if you ever see a Kendall sign, they got two fingers with a hand holding up, meaning 2,000 miles on an oil change. Anyway, the company was around a long time. She had a pretty good business there. It was, uh, 
it was doing very well. And one of the guys retired, and I, I just answered an ad in the paper for that. I didn't have anybody recommend them or anything. Um, so I got the job. Didn't know anything about motor oil or any of the products she sold, really, but I figured I could learn. And I did, and did a fairly good job. I didn't work on commission. She paid me a salary, and then there was a bonus at the end of the year. There was no commission. Uh, the salary was livable, but I, I wasn't really that happy with it. But And then the bonuses were decent, and, you know, I paid the bills. It was nothing really exciting. The job was fine. I had good customers. And, uh, it was okay, you know. Um, Where was I going? Oh, the one thing that happened when I was doing that, I would have to spend the night, and I was down in Carbondale, Illinois, which is, uh, this is going to be another pool story, but I was in Carbondale, Illinois, and I went out that night to get something to eat, and I saw this pool hall, so I thought, eh, I have nothing to do all day, but now I'll go in and play some pool. It was a college town, Carbondale, Illinois. Is. Nice pool hall, a lot of tables, and and they had everything. They had snooker tables, uh, three cushion tables, eight footers. You know, they had nine footers. It was really a nice place and a bar. So I walked in there and, and I go up to the counter and, and I, I saw the snooker table and I asked the guy, I said, uh, I said, I'd like to get that snooker table. But I said, could you give me a regular set of balls that I can play on the snooker table? He says, are you crazy, man? You know how hard that's going to be to make regular balls on a snooker table? Because snooker balls are a lot smaller yeah. than regular pool balls. And the pockets are a lot tighter. I said, no, I know. I wanted it that way because I wanted to practice and make it harder to make a ball makes you more accurate. He said, no, if that's what you want to do, that's fine with me. So I did that. And I went back and played for maybe a half hour. I was doing okay. Guy comes up to me and says, do you play pool for money? I said, sometimes. He said, you play nine ball? I said, yeah, I play nine ball once in a while, which is about all I ever play. <laughs> Anybody that knows me knows that. <laughs> a while. Except the leagues were eight ball. You had to play yeah. eight ball in the leagues. Now they play nine ball in the leagues. So I said, yeah. He said, well, I'm not playing here. I want to play over on this table. It was an eight-foot table. I said, that's fine with me. <laughs> well, by the time I got on that eight-foot table with the bigger pockets and the shorter length, I could hardly miss a ball because I've been playing <laughs> on the snooker table, which is 10 foot. Is it 10 foot to snooker or nine? Anyway, a lot bigger table, yeah. smaller pockets. I mean, it was, and I was still playing pretty good then. Well, it was that time, you know, from, uh, I was there from 85 to 90. So that was the time I played in the, in the nationals downtown in 88, 89, I played yeah. in the league. So it was all around that time, and I had the pool table and playing at home and playing with Brian, playing with Dave and all that. So I'm playing him, and uh, and I'm up. I'm beating him. He's a pretty good player, but I'm more than holding my own. I got more money of his, you know, kind of enough. I go over, and I get a drink. I get a, a screwdriver. Guy sitting at the bar, and he says, you playing over on that table? I said, yeah. He says, what's he giving you, the eight ball? And I said, no. What? I said, matter of fact, I said, we were playing even. I said, no, I'm giving him the eight. He said, he's the best damn player in here. He said, that that's crazy. You can't be giving him the eight. I said, I am. <laughs> so he come over and started watching us. 
Anyway, I wound up, I won enough money off of him. It was somewhere around $75 to 100 because the reason I know that is that was the fee to enter the state tournament. And that made me enough money that night to pay my entry fee into the state tournament that year. I didn't have to take it out of my pocket, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I did a little traveling with him, you know, of course, Southern Illinois. And, then, and that job was all right. Just didn't make a whole lot of money. And, and then at the end, Miss Dora was in her late 80s, and she was losing it. And uh, I saw the writing on the wall. I thought, it's time to go, and I need to go be on my terms, not on her terms. But I wanted to wait until... I forgot what month we got our bonus because I knew I'd get probably a $5,000 bonus, I was thinking. So I wanted to wait till then, you know, but as fate has it, you don't, that always doesn't determine the outcome. So, so I was downstairs playing pool with John Young, who, well, I have to skip forward. So I, I, I worked there till 90. <clears throat> And I, Linda worked at American Cleaners with a lady named Terry Young for years, for quite a few years. And they got talking one time. Well, it turns out her husband, John, bought a pool table. And he, he was going to learn how to play pool. Well, what does Linda say? Well, my husband runs pool tournaments. <laughs> he's been playing pool since he was a kid and, you know, and all this and that and she said, I'll tell you the next time there's a pool tournament in Arnold Bowl, and John can go up there and meet Don and all that, you know. So John comes up, and we get talking, and uh, he said, man, he said, I really need somebody to play pool with that knows what they're doing, knows a little bit about the game. He said, I really don't know anything about it, you know, about. And I said, okay, we can do that, you know. So he, came, he was over to the house one night. The first time he was there, he came over and we were playing pool and we were talking and I was showing him things, you know, and uh, he, he was doing pretty good uh, for the little time he had been playing. <clears throat> so just off the wall, he was getting ready to go. And I said, John, you're out on the road a lot, aren't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, tell you what, I said, if you hear of any job openings, I said, I, I got a situation where I don't think it's going to last too much longer, and I'm going to look around. And I said, if you hear something, would you let me know? He said, yeah, I'll let you know. I'm telling you, I, I believe more and more in fate all the time. Yeah. The next morning, about 8 o'clock, I get a phone call. It's John. Hey, my boss wants to talk to you. About what? About a job. What? I just talked to him the night before. He said, we had a guy quit. Well, he was actually going to get fired, but he quit before he got fired. <laughs> it was actually John's nephew. And he wasn't, he wasn't into sales. It wasn't his fault. He's just not a, a salesperson. Not everybody's cut out for it. So I said, okay. You know, I'll, I'll come down and do an interview. So I went down and talked to Bob Kratz, the owner. And it turns out he went to the same high school I did, Southwest High School, which was something we had in common, you know. And we got along good, and we talked, and, you know. And he said, well, he said, you know, I'm interested in hiring you, but he said, 
I want my partner to meet you and talk to you before we make, I'd like you to come in for another interview. And I said, okay, I can do that. So I did. He calls me and his partner, Dick Black, is in on the meeting and I talked to him. And So I let it go. They didn't hire me right there. And John, I think, is pressuring him to hire me. And John really didn't know me that well, you know, to, to endorse me as an employee. But uh, I guess he, he thought I'd do a good job for him. I don't know. So they called me back in, or just Bob called me back in. And he said something. He said, you know, I got three other people I'm thinking about for this job. And he says, he said, and you're one of them. And he said, he said, the other guys have a little more qualifications than you do. But he said, he said, what do you think? He said, what do you think about working here? And I said, I said, I can tell you one thing, Bob. I said, if I go to work for you, I said, I'll work hard. I'll make the calls. I'll make the sales. I'll do what needs to be done. I said, I can promise you that. I said, anybody that I work for, I think could tell you that. And he kind of just sat there for a minute and looked at me and he said, I'm going to hire you. And then he wanted me to start. I don't know when it was. But before I got my bonus at the other place, at Superb. And I told him, I said, Bob, I told him the situation. I just laid it out there. Yeah. He said, man, he said, we need somebody, you know, pretty quick. And so I wound up taking two weeks vacation and working at Superior Industrial Supply and on vacation from Superb. I haven't. <laughs> and... I stayed long enough to get my bonus, and after I did, and boy, Miss Doyle was not happy about that at all mm -hmm. for me telling her afterwards. But I earned that bonus yeah. all year long. That's the way I looked at it. You stayed to collect. <laughs> she offered me more money. She offered me a pretty good raise, and I said, you know, Miss Doyle, I said, this is, uh, this is the opportunity I'm looking for. I said, it's straight commission. I said, they're a well-known company, very successful company good products. I said, I've talked to people about them. I said, I just think this is the best opportunity for me. So we parted ways. And, uh, and of course, as you know, I stayed there for 27 years. So I guess I did a good enough job. Yeah. I mean, well, like whenever you explain that to me the first time too, like the odds <laughs> that those connections would be made, like I always say, I'm like, it's, like now, especially as you get older and you understand, like, you know, mutual interests, like common, just things that bring people, like, together or whatever, like, that's literally, like, key for everything. Yeah. yeah. And, like, once you have that, then everything, you know, bounce. Oh, look, we both play pool. I'm learning how to play pool. He came over yeah. here. You know, he knew of a place, like, you know, that was higher and whatnot. You just so happen to say that before yeah. he leaves. The next morning you get the call. Yeah. Flips everything into motion. And then that's where you end up staying and making, you know, over a quarter of a century, like, you know, in the workforce yeah. and whatnot there before yeah. you left. Yeah, I have to believe in fate of some kind. It's just... And you can't even explain, you know what I mean? Like, and to some extent, like, people can say things are, you know, coincidences, but I don't know. Sometimes things are lined up for a certain reason at a certain time yeah. and place. Yeah. You know so what I mean? No, I think so. kind of plays out like a story. Yeah, it's because of things, like and that it's that are just yeah. sometimes those big like moments, and sometimes you don't even realize that that's what they are, but then they just set yeah. a lot of other stuff in motion. And who knew that I'd get a job there at all? 
I mean, I'm sure John helped me and promoted me, but, uh, and then who knew that I'd be there for the rest of my working life, so you know? So you did start there in, in, in 90. In 90, yeah. 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 So by that Christmas, were you were, I mean, obviously you were already working there by then, then. Um, I started in May of 90. Oh, okay. May 5th, okay. I think. So yeah, you got your you bonus. Work there, you worked there until you retired? 27 then? years. Till 2017, yeah. Yeah, yeah 2017. Um, well, that guy you started on like a whole, you know, that was finally an extremely consistent job with no, you know, not a lot of layoffs like you were used to. Yeah. Like you had finally yeah. kind of broken through a wall to get, yeah. you know, to where you wanted to be, you know. Really, we only had one real bad year when I was there was in, um, right after Obama took office. 2008, was it? 2009 is the first year he was 2009. in office, January 20th, 2009. Yeah, that year was horrible. Yeah, I think my income was down. That was 20, after that 20, whole stock market crash. Twenty thousand or so. It was ridiculous. Yeah. 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 That, that was, was a bad year. Yeah, our sales really. I mean, well, everybody. We weren't the only ones. They really tanked, and and uh, actually, I didn't even know if the company would make it through it, but they did. And after that, it was good. Well, before that, it was good. I remember the. Vice President coming up to me one day, not too long after I started, and, you know, he just, you know, small talk, how you doing, how's everything going, do you need anything, can we help you with anything, blah, 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 blah. I said, no, I, you know, everybody's helping me out, and things are going good so far. And they did start me on a draw. I was on straight commission, but they gave me, it was only like 400 a week or something. It wasn't much, maybe a little more than that. Uh... Because you have to have something to live on. And, yeah. and I had nothing. They gave me like nine accounts, you know, so I had no commissions coming in or very little commission. Yeah. And I remember him saying to me, he said, you know, he said, don't worry about it. He said, in a year, you'll you'll be making more than your draw and all this and that. And I said, no, no, no. He said, what? I said, it's not going to be a year, Dick. I said, I'm, I'm figuring on three months, I'm going to be doing enough sales that will exceed what you're, the draw you're giving me. He said, that'd be wonderful if you can do that. And I did. I was making more commission then. Uh, I mean, and by then, too, you know, we're not back in the 60s when everything was that. Like, things had gone up. It was 1990 yeah. by then. Yeah. So this yeah. isn't, you know. <clears throat> Cheaper, but not yeah. as cheap as 60s. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you guys sort of there. Do you remember you have too much from uh, 90, 91, 92 or so? Well, 90, 91, I should ask. Yeah, I don't really have. Um, obviously, kids got older. Mom yeah. graduated in 89. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Eventually. So, I was going to say, before you guys did move, so eventually I guess you were just kind of feeling like it was time to move, move on from Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Well, and... Uh, by getting that job, uh, I made more money than I ever did anywhere else at that job. Yeah. And I thought I could if I got on a straight commission job, Started. and I did. The first year was really rough. It was not. It was not. The income was not there. But then after that first year, it started. I think the second year it doubled. I doubled what I made the first year, and so by uh, by '92, we were able to buy this house, to buy a bigger house, and 
you know, sell Lincoln and move out, move here. You said during this kind of period of time, like during Superior, like at least the early part, you were kind of segueing out of pool again for a little while? Yeah, because when I first started with Superior, they had so many products. They had, I think it was 27,000 items, if I remember. That's a lot of items. And I didn't know much about any of this. I did know about mm. the paint. They didn't have Rust-Oleum, but they had a similar product uh, called Rust-Tough that was made by Krylon. So I was pretty well versed in that, and I could sell that. But that was a small part of their business. Their big business was hydraulics. I knew nothing about hydraulic hose and fittings. I took stacks of catalogs home with me every night and would go through them just trying to learn, you know, what is this, you know, just what kind of pressures and, you know, what uh, medium can flow through this hose. Well, so you and, know about the product you're selling. Oh, yeah, yeah you, you have know, to you know. You got to be able to. first year was rough. You had to get acclimated and yeah, accustomed yeah. to what you were selling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first, I worked the first week in the warehouse to kind of learn things, mm-hmm. you know, and people helped me and I would ask questions and kind of went down the aisles, up and down, looking at what, if you physically see the items that are there, it helps yeah. you a little bit. But I still was nowhere near knowing what I needed to do. But the boss said to me one time, he said, why don't you go make a couple calls on these existing customers, which I said wasn't very many. And he said, if you want to make a cold call, and I thought, boy, you know, I could do that, but I really don't know much about this. So anyway, I thought, you know, what the hell? Let's jump in. Let's do it. So I went down around the Perryville area and called on one of the existing customers Actually, there was a couple down in that area and in St. Genevieve. So I was driving down uh, in St. Genevieve on 32, and there's a tractor place there. It was called Giza Machine, but they sold tractors, and and Butch Giza owned it and still does own it. And he had a machine shop there, too, so he did machine work, and he sold tractors and tractor parts. So I went in there and uh, Introduced myself, told him who I was with and everything. Gave him a line card that we had. We didn't really have a catalog with everything in it. We had a line card that listed, you know, the different items. Oh, he says, Don, he said, you got weatherhead hose and fittings. I said, yes, I do. And he said, yeah. He said, well, that's what I use. I use weatherhead hose and fittings. He said, I'd like you to uh, give me prices on that. And, And he said, do you carry a pretty good stock? I said, oh, yeah. So my understanding is, we're one of the largest stocking distributors in the area. I said, that's what I've been told, you know, by people. Who are, I told him I was new, you know, and uh, and I told him that. I said, you know, I, I don't know everything, but I said, any questions you have or whatever, I said, I can, you know, I can find out if I don't know the answer. He said, well, he said, I've been doing hydraulics for years. He said, it isn't so much knowing that. He said, I really just know if you're competitive on price and what kind of service you offer and I told him, I said, well, I'm going to be coming by on a regular basis, probably once a month or so, and check on you. You could call the orders in. You could fax orders in, you know. So I worked on that and uh, got him the price and then that. And then uh, he, started <clears throat> he started buying from me. And I was in there one day, and he has a hose hand. And he said, uh, might have been the first order I wrote there. He said, Don, I need about 12 of these hose ends. And I looked at it. I don't know what it is by looking at it, you know. And I said, well, Butch, I said, do you have a number or anything on that? He says, you don't know what it is? I said, 
I said, I've only been out on my own for a week. I said, I, I, I don't really, I said, it should be on the fitting what, what this number is. And he just laughed. And then years later, he brought that back up to me because he'd always, he was behind the counter and had the machine there and he would pull a hose fitting out of the drawer. And later on, once I knew everything, I'd see that fitting and I'd write the part number down. And he said, I need, I said, yeah, 06U608, how many you want? He starts laughing. He said, I remember the first time you came in here. He said, you didn't know what OZ was. And I said, well, you have to learn, boy. <laughs> so, yeah, I got on my own real quick. And, uh, yeah, and it was good. It was a good place to work. Family-owned company. Yeah. And. Started learning it and learning the products. Well, what we were saying, yeah, I kind of got out of pool then. Well, John and I were still playing pool. We played on leagues, but. I, re I really didn't practice much because I'd work during the day and at night I'd bring these catalogs. One time I'd bring the Weatherhead catalog and look through it. Mm -hmm. Another night I'd do the uh, Loctite catalog with all the adhesives and chemicals and, you know, different products. So well, at one point I even told Linda, I said, I said, I can't do this. I said, I, I just can't learn all of this. I just can't do it. I said, it's too much. It's too overwhelming yeah. for me, you know. She said, oh, you can do it, you know. And I said, I can't. I said, it's just, I said, I just can't learn all this. There's just too many items, you know. With Rust-Oleum, you just only had so many colors and a couple primers, and that was it. This is like humongous. Yeah. 17,000 products. Or yeah. Whatever, of things that you're not really experienced. Familiar with. Yeah. And they did start having classes where the factory rep, uh, like Rich, can't remember his last name, from Loctite would come in. And he would even go out with me and demonstrate products. And I learned a lot from him. And he would teach. You know, I had a company in Herculaneum used to rebuild trash trucks, uh, compactors and that. And we went down there and all the mechanics got in a room and Rich came in and I came in. Rich did his spiel. And boy, I just learned... A lot. I was fairly new then, you know, uh, but I learned a lot about the products just listening to him. He was a great teacher. It's you know, great to have a mentor. Yeah, he was a chemical yeah. engineer. I mean, he knew everything about these products, and you know, and it was a good deal. And and, and I wound up selling a lot of a lot of product down there because of him, you know. And I took him several places. There were a lot of reps I didn't want to take with me because I knew more than they did. Some of them, which was very little. <laughs> Uh, but Rich was one of the exceptional ones, and he he really helped me. Yeah, there were a few of them that, that were really good, and I enjoyed working with them. The paint salesman was that sold uh, the Krylon Rust stuff. He was a character, yeah. and he found out I worked for Rust-Oleum, you know, and him and I hit it off pretty good. And he'd go out with me, and, man, I mean, he was a salesman. He was, he was something else. <laughs> he knew that product inside out. <laughs> yeah he'd tell people how to shake he said you know how to shake a spray can he'd tell the customer yeah, I know how to shake a spray can to get it you know mix it up show me he'd add them to the can <laughs> that's not how you do it what do you mean he said first you take it like this there's a ball in these spray cans and there's a concave in the bottom of the can mm -hmm. all the pigment gets stuck in that bottom so the first thing you do is turn it like this so that ball goes around and loosens all that pigment then you can start shaking it but you got to get all that pigment, and that's what the balls are in there for. Mm -hmm. 
And most people don't. Nobody knows that. They take a spray can and just start spraying. You know, some of them don't even shake it up and mix it up. <laughs> but this guy, was he was just incredible. And he helped me out a great deal. So eventually I... know everything about your product <clears throat> inside and out if you want to be the best salesman, I guess. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, I, there was a motivational speaker that I heard. Bob Proctor was his name from Canada. And he said one thing I never forget. He said, if you're in commission sales, or I guess any kind of sales... He said, your income will be directly related to the amount of service you provide the customer. Yeah. And he is absolutely correct. Even if you're not an expert on all the products, if a customer calls you and they have a question and you don't know the answer, you call them back, you answer their question, or you offer to bring an expert down to their place of business and show to them or whatever whatever he needs done as long as you take care of it they don't care if you're not if you don't know everything i found out engineers don't know everything i always thought engineers you know knew everything i would call on guys down in Festet at the concrete plant they didn't know pipe sizes they didn't know quarter inch pipe or half inch pipe or three-quarter pipe now wouldn't an engineer know that when all this piping is all over these plants but they couldn't, now maybe not all of them, but the guy I dealt with, you know, he said, well, I don't know what size pipe this is, Don. I said, well, it's half-inch pipe. <laughs> well, he, he's an engineer, so you should know that, you know. <laughs> so, you know, you don't know everything. Yeah. Uh, but you learn. And, well, obviously, I was wrong that I couldn't do it because I stayed there for 27 years. So I did learn about the products. A little bit of reassurance from, you know, for yeah. Anna probably helped along the way. Oh yeah, she was she was always supporting me. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. She that's was, what makes it work, you know. Yeah, she was always there. Well, it was a good place to work, and eventually you made uh, you're making enough money to get uh, you know a bigger place. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Linda, Anna, as you call her, after we moved in here, sitting on the we were sitting in our recliners one night, and she's just looking all around. And I said, what? what's wrong? She said, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd have this nice a house. She said, this is incredible. And it's not, it's an average home or maybe <laughs> below average. I don't know. But to us, I grew up in poverty. She grew up a little better than me. But Neither one of you ever had your own rooms? No, we never had our you own rooms. You still room. got a pool table downstairs. Yeah. You got a bigger house. <laughs> you know, and we moved from Lincoln and we got a two-car garage and two bathrooms instead mm -hmm. of one bathroom. So, you know, and that's what we wanted. We wanted a garage, two-car garage, so we could keep our cars yeah. in there. So, yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> and it was called because of, you know, I guess being in the right place at the right time and getting a job with Superior and then working hard. And When these opportunities come your way, you got to take them. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, that one worked out. Yeah, All yeah. All the teach the guy how to play a little pool, you got a yeah. job till retirement. Yeah. <laughs> Mutual interest. Yeah, yeah worked worked out pretty good. Um, so that wait. was 90, uh, 91, 92. Yeah, I was going to say that brings us about 92. Yeah. Um, Is that where we wanted to be? Yeah, yeah. about, um, I was going to say, we. I mean, we already kind of covered and talked about how the kids kind of grew up. Yeah. You guys moved in here. Well, actually moved in here, like, what, weeks before Uncle Brian graduated? Yeah. Yeah, just a couple of weeks before graduating. Dang. I guess we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, we'll be... 
see you got the nicer place right right about the time that you you're like yeah. we got we got more space open got Kids. the job comfortable in the job oh, making yeah. some yeah. money learning yeah. the products yeah um i mean honestly we did it we uh we pretty much covered another 20 year whole section yeah. You know, it's better to get a nicer place, though, when your kids are a little more grown so they don't wreck it. Yeah, and that's yeah. true. When the kids are little, <laughs> yeah. they can be destructive. They um, weren't too bad at, at the old house. Oh, yeah. Anything else? Uh, uh, I don't know. can think of it at end. I'm going to have to put the memory to work before the next one. Well, at least oh, the yeah. next one's the most recent. We yeah. definitely, Yeah, we definitely so, will. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, honestly, yeah. we're kind of ending at the perfect place because this is still before all of us. Right. You had your yeah. run. You got the superior job. like, And now we're leaving off in 92, and that was, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. So it's like that. <laughs> we're, like, just now <laughs> to there. It's like yeah. we've already put a hardcore, like, what, five, six hours in now, counting yeah. the last episode. Um, but, uh, we will do that when we pick up with part three and we'll put the, uh, thinking caps on, piece together some stories. Okay. I'll actually be involved in this next one a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but, uh. Well, yeah, you will be involved. (laughs) True though. No, we'll, we'll have, we'll have plenty to talk about, plenty to get to. Um, we hope everybody's. You were 96. 96. Corey was 93. Haley was 2000. Yeah, 2000. So, uh. Ah, I remembered all your birthdays. Yeah, that's January, good. March, September, <laughs> all those years. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully everybody's enjoying these. This was part two of the uh, the Legends Life Saga, the Don Wickman Life Story. Uh, anyways, um, we will be hitting you guys hard here real soon with more uh, content, with another, with well, probably here the concluding chapter of our. Uh, of our, you know, significant event here with this project. Saga. Uh, we've also got, you know, a couple more guest spots, maybe a solo episode or two for you, and we have one month left of, you know, our most successful year ever to uh, to deliver you one more chain of fantastic episodes. So that's what we're gonna do. Close out the year strong. Alrighty, well, ladies and gentlemen, hopefully uh, everybody's doing well, and we will see you next for episode number 65. Hope you have a good night and a good week. See you guys. So long.